0: old-timey crimey. I am Christy. And I am Amber. And we are here this week with yet another bonkers historical true crime tale of uh, of a lady who just couldn't keep it in her her petticoats. Couldn't keep (laughs) it in her petticoats. (laughs) But before we get to that lady, uh, first of all, our treacherous tart merchandise is up on the Redbubble site. Link is in the show notes. It's 10% off until March 7th, I've decided. So everything there is 10% off from t-shirts to uh, notepads to, uh, this is my favorite thing, a treacherous tart apron. Which is beautiful. You have to love that. And I made three different color schemes. One's pink and white, one's maroon and navy, and one's kind of like purple and navy. And so I was just having fun with color schemes. I might even put some more color schemes up. We'll, it's, we'll see how the week goes. but So you can get some of that, and it's really awesome. I, myself, really need a treacherous tart something shirt or I do too. sticker for my laptop, something like that. It's just a matter of choosing what color I want because <laughs> I made the designs, so I made them in colors I like. I wanted them all. <laughs> and I'm a, I'm a jewel tone person, so there's lots of jewel tones in there. And I had some design help from our good friend, the Live Barbian who was there for that episode, 150, when the treacherous tart thing came up. And uh, she, she and I were trading designs back and forth, and she was the one who inspired me for what became the final design. So thank you to the Libarbian for the design help. Thanks, Libarbian! And don't forget about our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash And we just this week put out both our regular weekly bonus episode and our monthly bonus episode. The regular weekly bonus episode was a tale I told Amber about an actress who was in some burlesque shows. And a man sitting on a trunk smoking a cigarette while speaking to the police. And a lot of questions at the end, it turned out. No, (laughs) I'm pretty sure I have it solved. (laughs) I mean, you have a theory. I have a theory. You have a theory, yes. And in the end, we'll never know, but it was a really uh, interesting story to talk about. And then for our Extra Extra, which is our monthly bonus episode, we did uh, executions that were done on February 28th, which is the day that the episode actually comes out. So that was very interesting. I did a French case and my apologies to all of our patrons for my French pronunciation as always. It's much better than what mine would have been. (laughs) So there's always that. So yeah, all that stuff is there. Five bucks a month, and there's well over 100 episodes and all the extra extras. There's just so much content there for you to binge. And then you'll also get a shout out on the show, and you can't can't not love that. Everybody wants a shout out on the show. So speaking of shout outs, I'd like to give a shout out to Andrew Noon. He is the author of Bathsheba Spooner, A Revolutionary Murder Conspiracy. And he reached out to us to see if we'd be interested in this book. And I took one look at the synopsis and I was like, yes, yes, we are. And then he was kind enough to send us a copy so that we can use it on the show. And so thank you very much to Mr. Noon. I hope we do the story justice. I felt that the book was very well written. It was comprehensive. It was an amazing history lesson. And it really took you back to that time period and immersed you. You could just feel that he's already steeped in that history and he steeps you right along with him.
1: Well and you know what I love it because even in some of my other sources, it would either tag his book as a source or I would see his book mentioned in the comments of almost every site I was on.
0: Yeah, I think he's really the author who brought this story back to life. And if it weren't for him, we wouldn't have known about the story at all. I've never come across this story and we have a list of over 250 different cases. And this was not on it. Well, it's
1: it's largely lost to history because even though there is a claim to fame that we will get to towards the end, it's not mentioned. Yeah. So this is the first of something. But in history books, it accredits that to somebody else.
0: Mm, yeah. It's really... It's really an interesting story, and it's, it's good that it's being brought back. Um, and so we're going we're gonna to have an interesting time telling this. And also, any other historical true crime authors, if you have a book and you'd like us to cover your book on the show and talk about the case that you, you know, spent it, probably at least a year of your life researching and writing, reach out, oldtimeycrimey at gmail.com, and we would be happy to take a look at it. Absolutely. All right, so let's talk about Bathsheba Spooner and her many, 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 many men. She was a lovely lady. She uh, had some love to give and spread around. Her maiden name was Ruggles, so she was born Bathsheba Ruggles, which sounds like it should be a television show, kind of for yeah. kids, but maybe about the Bible. Yes, <laughs> the got Bible the, for kids. The Bathsheba from the Bible, and then Ruggles. The family came over to America, well, what would become America, in 1637 and settled in Massachusetts. And they even had some royal connections back in England. Back in the day, the Ruggles had formed an alliance with a very, very well-known name, the Boleyn family. Mm. We know that didn't end super well for some people with the last name Boleyn. Not a very happy ending. And Bathsheba's great-grandmother was directly descended from Henry I of France. It's kind of hard to follow that path back. I did kind of give it a shot, but it was a little hard to try to trace that. I really wanted to, but I was like, oh, that's, that's a That's a rabbit hole I should just not go down because what am I going to do, sit here and spit names at you?
1: Yeah, (laughs) let me tell you the entire genealogy of the person we're talking about. We're going to go back 600 years. So there's going to be a lot of people that are not at all important to this story. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly what it would
0: have been. And I at least finally was smart enough for once to be like, Christy, come on.
1: (laughs) They were distantly related.
0: And have no influence whatsoever on the present life that she was living. It's not like she was going to become queen of France. And what I did find in that, I did enjoy, that one of Henry I's sons was Philip the Amorous. He seems to have gotten his name from dumping his wife, Bertha, uh, claiming she was too fat for him, and marrying the wife of a count. And uh, I'm just going to say, maybe... Some things are hereditary. Cough, cough. Philip the amorous
1: mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> also had a lot of love to spread around. Apparently so, <laughs> yeah. but not for poor Bertha. Yeah, right. Again, Bertha's not really coming out well on this show. They're not. They're not living their best lives.
1: No, I, I, I feel like they would
0: have to change their names. Yeah. So the Ruggles family had a history of involvement with the militia prior to the Revolutionary War. They were also very distinguished in the realms of education and religion. They were very prodigious at making babies. Very good at it, generations after generations, with quite wide branches on the family tree. Some generations might have multiple sons joining the clergy. And Bathsheba's father graduated from Harvard and taught as a Latin master, as well as acting as a lawyer and politician. Wow. Now there's this. On her mother's side, Bathsheba's mother's side, one of her ancestors is associated with a story that I'm just going to guess is apocryphal, so not really true, just kind of like lore, related to one of Cape Cod's most famous crops. Andrew Noon, the author of the book, tells us a story about this missionary who was an ancestor of Bathsheba's maternal side, who had a dispute with a Native American. And This is uh, from from Andrew Noon. During one dispute, a medicine man lost his temper and began chanting an old rhyme, which caused Born to become mired in quicksand. The men agreed to a contest to determine who would best survive a two-week fast. When the Indian's strength waned, Bourne enjoyed the decided advantage of a dove who visited from time to time, dropping a juicy, quote, cherry in his mouth. Days into the contest, unable to cast a spell upon Bourne's providential pet, and swooning from thirst and hunger, the medicine man collapsed, and Bourne was a free man. During one foray, the dove dropped the fruit into the bog, and it multiplied. Endowing Cape Cod with its first crop of cranberries. Mm Mm-hmm. That's how it all happened. It's definitely how it all happened. Yeah, I'm just going to go ahead and guess apocryphal. (laughs) And uh, just, I I don't know, something tells me.
1: Yeah. It's a
0: weird gut instinct I have. So Bathsheba's father was Timothy Ruggles. He had a law practice and snagged himself a spot on the colonial legislature, which was known as the General Court. And he would actually become really revered throughout the region as an attorney and a statesman. Like, everybody knew who Timothy Ruggles was. This was a very renowned family. Bathsheba's mother was also named Bathsheba. And henceforth, we will call her Mama Bathsheba.
1: (laughs) I hate that they used to do this for boys and girls. It drives
0: me nuts. Just generation after generation after generation of the same damn names. Right? Why? Just why? I'm just going to put this out there as a rule. If you name your children after you, you should tell them they're never allowed to commit murder because it makes murder podcasts really more difficult than they need to be. (laughs) Really, anything (laughs) involving a newspaper, though,
1: because if you're the fourth of the same name... That name could be in the newspaper for 150 years, and you have to be like, all right, so in this year, this one would have been 75, so probably not him, but it could have been one of the other two younger ones, because they were like
0: 50 and 25. It really could go either way. Exactly. And with women, it's even harder, because it's not like you have Bathsheba Jr. or Bathsheba II. Second. It's just Bathsheba and Bathsheba, and uh, spoiler alert, we're going to get another Bathsheba.
1: (laughs) If you're lucky enough to get your first name in the paper, ladies, because we all know that a lot of the times you're just
0: Mrs. Somebody. Exactly. Yes. Well, Bathsheba, she'll, she'll... She'll be a Mrs. Somebody. Break right through that glass ceiling, too. Right through it. So Mama Bathsheba owned a tavern that had been actually her deceased husband's property, and... Mama Bathsheba already had eight children when her first husband died. And then when she married Timothy, she went on to have seven children with him.
1: Oh, that woman's poor uterus.
0: I know, right? That's 15 kids. That's a lot. Yeah, she started childbearing in 1723. I don't like saying that. It makes me feel icky. Anyhow, She had her first kid in 1723. Yes, she was 20 years old. And she had her last child in 1748 when she was 45 years old. So she was having kids for a solid 25 years. Uh So out of that 25 years, she got about 10-ish years where she wasn't pregnant, but probably almost no years where she wasn't pregnant and or nursing.
1: Yeah, I was going to say because at the time, the formula wasn't a thing. hmm so she's probably pregnant and nursing for much of this time, or at least has one or two newborns. Yeah. The amount of toddlers running around. Jesus. Like, my eye is twitching <laughs> just thinking about the amount of mouths to feed and kids. And I mean, I guess it back then, it's also a lot of like free labor, help on farms, help in the bar, whatever it might be. But good. God man, twenty-five years.
0: Yeah. Whew. It's a quarter of a century of having children.
1: Well, and and then back then, so even now 45 is a geriatric pregnancy. That's what it's considered. Yeah. I think
0: even after 35? After maybe? 35,
1: yeah. it's considered a geriatric pregnancy. But back then, 45, you're essentially elderly. Just in general, mm-hmm. and to still be popping out kids at 45 is both impressive
0: and frightening. Yes, it's very much both. Bathsheba was actually the next to last of these children. And she was daddy's favorite. so, oh, so she
1: was the last girl.
0: Um, I think there might have been a girl after her. I can't remember specifically. Just yeah, an unimpressive there's one, apparently. Th- there's too many children to keep track of, so I didn't even think to... Do the birth <laughs> order, yeah. Or write that down. When she was eight, the family picked up and moved from Sandwich, Massachusetts to Hardwick, which is about 120 miles. So that would have been a really big life change at the time. I mean, 120 miles now, you can do that in a couple of hours, depending on the types of roads and conditions and all that. But back then, mm, that's going to take you a while. Yeah. Actually, a lot of Timothy's family His aunts and some siblings joined in on the move over time. They were like, oh, okay, Hardwick looks pretty good. Let's go there too. But none of Mama Bathsheba's family did. So she was uh, kind of lonely. And it's it's, it's sort of understandable because her family had been really instrumental in settling the Sandwich area and had lived there at that point for 150 years.
1: So that's like her homestead.
0: Yeah, that's that's her ancestral home, literally ancestral, many ancestors. And she's just been uprooted, and when you take a big tree that's been uprooted,
1: it doesn't go well.
0: Yeah, exactly, exactly. And uh, Noon in the book refers to some suggestions over the years that this fact may have caused some upset in the household, which might, depending on your point of view, have been part of shaping young Bathsheba, and explains some of her eventual actions, but he also is careful to note that this might just be presumptuous on, on everyone's part to assume this, because we don't have too many concrete details. He does note that the change and the difficulties would have been more than just the fact that she lost touch with her family, because she's also completely had a shift in lifestyle. She spent her life running a tavern, now, there's an estate and over a thousand acres and a farm. Complete, complete paradigm shift for her. Yeah, it's a completely different job. She's lost
1: her entire support system that she had. I'm sure she was really close with her family and they mm-hmm. lived right there. They could grab the kids whenever she needed a hand. And so she's lost that.
0: She, she gave up everything on this move. Yeah, yeah, her entire system. And Timothy seems to be doing just fine. He has a lot of uh, hobbies and things he enjoys on this estate. Fuck had, you, Timothy. <laughs> Sorry. He had a deer park of his own design. A yeah, yeah. There was a period of time um it wasn't in this century. I think it was the end of the 19th century when deer were almost extinct. And that surprised me, but it it's they were they were rarely seen, which is weird to think now that We're like out on the deck yelling at them for eating our garden in the summertime. So he had the deer park. He had a stud farm of prized horses, uh, a dairy herd, an orchard. Apparently, he also kept hounds. The family had three of the best pews in church. Oh, my, my. Aren't we fancy? (laughs) Quite fancy. So their family was really like the family to know. But there's a couple more distasteful accounts of the relationship between Timothy and Mama Bathsheba, we have no way of verifying whether or not Mama Bathsheba served up Papa Timothy's favorite hound for dinner one evening. It's just a story that goes around. I'd believe it. Just like the stories that go around that, you know, he had a wandering eye and wandering hands and wandering penis.
1: Yeah, no, I'd believe it. I believe it. I, re- I really would, because she's probably
0: petty as fuck right now, because she uprooted Des- her whole life. Deservedly so. She she deserves to be a petty Betty, which yeah. is funny because Betty is a nickname for Bathsheba. <laughs> so she's being a petty Betty
1: because I mean her husband is has uprooted her whole life and has taken any joy she had, but he has all of these things and all of this stuff to do, and maybe is stepping out too. So yeah, she's she's a little spiteful and she she petty bettied some doggy stew. That that's
0: pretty. That that part is pretty horrifying, though.
1: It is pretty horrifying.
0: There's petty, and then there's psychotic. And when you're serving up somebody's favorite dog for dinner, I think you're you're kind of really you nudging that line a
1: little bit. But sometimes the best parts in life are walking that line. <laughs> that's
0: that's an Amber thing for sure. You would have been right there at Mama Bathsheba's shoulder, like do it. Do it. You know he deserves it. I would. <laughs> you would have. And I would have been like, no, but the puppy. No, I don't think I'd do
1: it to a dog. <laughs> no. Not, not.
0: So, you know, his descendants will argue about this or uh, dispute it, rather, I guess I should say. They say that Timothy was, quote, pure and astemious, which means he was not self-indulgent. And no, I didn't have to go to dictionary.com. Pfft. <sighs> Are you talking about.
1: Yeah, I feel like um I feel like I would have petty-betted one of his lovers. I just want to clarify, I would not do that to a dog, but I would do, you would that do it to, to a, a person. A person. Yes. You, you would Have you seen fried green tomatoes? I'm not the first person to have thought of it.
0: <laughs> okay. All right. Well, you're right about that. My 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 amber. <laughs> I'm really
1: in the mood for some barbecue. <laughs> you're
0: in You're in a mood, that's for sure. <laughs> there's moodier. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I love you, you weirdo. Okay, so we don't know exactly how Bathsheba's, and this is the central figure in our story, not Mama Bathsheba, but her daughter, just to clarify, how her upbringing and education went. But Noon says that she was probably, just judging by the, the company her family kept, around a lot of very educated, influential people. She might have studied at what was called a dame school, where they would have a widow or a spinster teach children in their home.
1: I'm picturing, like, what was that, Jane Eyre?
0: Jane Eyre, yes. 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 The, she was the governess.
1: Yep, that's, that's <laughs> what I You're a
0: spinster. Come teach my children. My wife, who struggles with mental illness, is definitely not in the attic. Spoilers for Jane Eyre and BTW. I I feel like you can't spoil it. No, you really can't. I just like to say it because it's funny to me that I'm spoiling something that, like, you know. Existed long before we did. Yes. Far, far before we did. So, uh, Timothy was a general and commander-in-chief of, I think, the Massachusetts militia. Had all kinds of victories and new positions, like he was Speaker of the House at one point the Chief Justice of the Court of Common Pleas, he was actually given another 1,500 acres of land in reward for all of his military slash militia service. I don't know exactly if we want to be specific. Let's
1: just give this already rich person more things.
0: Oh, yes, for sure, sir. Certainly he does not have enough room. He has a deer park and a stud farm and a dairy farm. He just needs more land. Let's give him all the land. So um, he has the three best pews in church. Oh my God, I can't. (laughs) I know, I know. That was a status symbol though. It really was. It's amazing that they can bring this into church. How your status in the community financially and reputationally is reflected in where you sit for the sermons that are supposed to be about things like, oh, I don't know, humility. (laughs) <laughs> yeah it's really interesting that it's like mm, look at me walking into church and sitting in one of the best pews and then the pastor's up there talking about how you know jesus teaches us to be humble and you're like mm, look at me sitting in one of the best pews <sighs> right over your head you guys in the back hear that be humble yeah be humble you in the back he's most certainly talking to you this does not apply to me i'm too rich
1: did i tell you about one of the last times i went to church and i got yelled at on the microphone I was going to say it didn't burst into
0: flames. You didn't burst into flames? Well, I didn't actually flames. touch the holy water.
1: No, but uh, it was a wedding, and I was late, as I am usually. And I, I just, like, snuck in the back, and there was this mural on the ceiling. And it really, really looked, I don't know who painted it, but it was it was god-awful, forgive the pun. Um, <laughs> it was like Jesus, and I think he was supposed to be carrying a Bible, but it looked like a box of cornflakes. Mm. And his other hand kind of looked like it was holding a joint, All <laughs> right, So I am like, I, I sneak into the wedding and I'm just staring at the ceiling and giggling very quietly. I'm, I'm not trying to draw attention to myself, but it really looks like stoner Jesus, huge all over the ceiling. <laughs> and then on, on this, this like priest, pastor, whatever the hell he was, has the microphone and starts singing, singing. Be attentive. <laughs> and he's staring at me. I look at him and we're like locking eyes. And I'm like, yep, that's for me. Okay. I got sung yelled at in church. That is beautiful. <laughs> you
0: should get like a Girl Scout badge for that.
1: I really, if Except I could collect badges for all the times I've been scolded by just ridiculous people, I I would love that. Except
0: it's not the Girl Scouts, it's the bad Girl Scouts. <laughs> <laughs> Bad girl And the sash with the badges is literally the only thing you wear <laughs> Amber has thoughts now I know what my Halloween costume's going to be <laughs> I'm
1: just going to have two sashes and that's it
0: <laughs> Excellent
1: Do you remember I was Little Red Riding Whore one year And I just wore a shirt that I made that said Eat me like the fucking book says <laughs>
0: Oh my god You do have really good Halloween costumes Alright, back to the story <laughs> We're in weird moods today. We're actually not hungry for once because we ate dinner. (laughs) And apparently food makes us weird. Apparently, yes. Who knew? So, Timothy, Bathsheba's father, is hopping all over the place with all these various duties and such. And Bathsheba is around 21 years old at this point. She's still at home. And actually, now I do know, there was one more sister. Her little sister, Elizabeth, is the only other child still at home. So, she wasn't the last girl. And Elizabeth was not the favorite. Apparently not. Nope. Bathsheba. She's the fave, fave, fave. So, it's basically in the house, you know, aside from any servants they might have, it is Bathsheba, Elizabeth, and Mama Bathsheba. And so, at 21, she was... Bathsheba was starting to get a little too close to spinsterdom. Yeah. Don't want that. Gotta hurry up and get her married off. Right? Now, there are lots of reasons to get married, as Noon points out. It's not just to avoid being the dreaded old maid, you know. There were some places where single men were fined or taxed extra just for being single. Wow. Or even possibly put on a registry. Okay. Yes, it's very, very strange. And Bathsheba, she was quite the looker. There's a portrait of her from when she's in her 30s. Shows a woman with delicate features. There's a faint blush on her cheeks. She has a very direct gaze. She's staring right at the viewer. She has a haughty expression. If she were in a pew, it would be one of the best pews in town. I bet. (laughs) And uh, she has just sort of an unusual sort of grace about her presence. She has brown hair, brown eyes, and in the portrait she's as tall as the gentleman around her. So there's also a black cat nearby just to show you that she's evil, of course.
1: Oh, yeah, she's a witch. Yeah, yeah. Must be.
0: I, I had a black cat for a little while, and that entire time I did nothing but cast spells on men. <laughs> My poor husband.
1: <laughs> yep. Put them all right into the the, uh, quicksand.
0: That's what I did. Yep. Yep. And then there were cranberries. Another thing that we've never really talked about as far as courtship during this period, but uh, one of the practices that they might do kind of a... There was still that, that puritanical tinge to the air. And so what they might have done is some bundling. 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 Like how you save on your car insurance. <laughs> With Geico. Yes. 15 minutes or less or something. I don't know. So a young lady and her prospective suitor would get to spend a night together prior to marriage. It would be in her family home. They would sleep in a bed together, fully clothed. Although she would probably always but generally at least be bundled with sort of breeches tied with a knot underneath her regular clothes. So they could spend the night in the bed together and talk and whisper, but he can't get out the goods. Or at least that's the plan.
1: Yeah, I feel like that probably didn't work out
0: very often. It's so awkward when it's in like the family home, especially like a lot of these family homes might be shared spaces for sleeping. Oh. <laughs> right? I mean, not necessarily this one, because they, they had a pretty big place, so she might very well might have had her own room, especially when only living with like, her mom and her sister. But, yeah, in, in many homes where this was done, you know, your mom and your dad might be sleeping right, like, right across the room or something, or siblings. Staring at you the whole time. Right, exactly. We don't know if she did that. It's just, it's just a really fascinating little tidbit. Meanwhile, there's sort of uh, The winds are shifting in the colonies. Her dad is kind of starting to lose status because more and more colonists have started considering independence as legislation comes from England that they feel is unfair. Meanwhile, Timothy Ruggles stays a loyalist. They call them loyalists. They call them Tories. Somebody who's still loyal to King George over in England and does not believe in any of this... You know, ideas about revolution and hogwash, like that. It's nonsense. But more and more, he starts being in the minority here. In 1765, Bathsheba finally got married. This was to Joshua Spooner. His family history is quite a bit hazier than hers, so we don't know a ton about them, but the two of them... Once they began their household, they moved 14 miles south to Brookfield, and she had a sister already living there, so that was pretty handy. She had a support network in town, so not faced with the same fate as her mother. Joshua made money via land speculation. This was really common in the day because there was a lot of land to speculate on. I mean, it wasn't like now when every single part has been snapped up until you get to the middle of the country, and even then some. He made a decent amount of money. And so the same year they settled in Brookfield, they bought a 16-room inn and tavern, tavern, or possibly her parents, the Ruggles, bought it for them. It's uncertain.
1: Well, I actually have that, that Josh's parents were wealthy as well. So, like...
0: It could have been everybody chipping in for this tavern?
1: Yeah, because I believe he, he was the son of a wealthy merchant, is how they put it. Um, And, I mean, they probably sat in at least the second pew. Oh, yes, at least. Absolutely.
0: Nothing else will do but the second pew. Or else (laughs) it will not do. Oh, man. Perfect. Yeah, so I don't think we know for sure, but we do know that they got themselves, you know, a tavern where lots of fun stuff could happen. According to Andrew Noon, the average tavern during this time period in the 1700s, you would have court. So cases would be tried and adjudicated. You would have elections. So vote and get drunk or get drunk and vote. Why not? Why not? Concerts, lotteries, and other entertainments like quote unquote freaks and ventriloquists. So I considered it a combination town hall, gas station, and circus. Like, you know, you can get your scratchy tickets and uh, see the bearded lady. That would be <laughs> and, awesome. And vote. I would enjoy that very much. <laughs> yes, and then watch a court case. That's that's entertainment. So uh, Noon describes a drink that was commonly served in winters during that time, because this is New England and it's going to be cold. It's called Flip. So this is a beer, egg, and nutmeg concoction spiked further with rum and sweetened with molasses or dried pumpkin, often scorched with a red hot poker for an even more bitter Earthy flavor, as he describes it. Interesting recipe. Ew. Yes. You lost me at egg. I've seen so many drink recipes from even the 1800s and the, the early 1900s where they put a damn egg in it. Every bartender must have had just dozens and dozens of eggs in the fridge, and as soon as somebody ordered a drink, he was already on his way to get the egg out because there is egg know. in every drink. I'm glad Um, that stopped. I Coke and egg. Yeah. (laughs) So the Spooner family had at least four servants to help around the house, but Noon says, and I found this very um, intriguing. While it may have been typical of patrician women to share in the tasks, in this realm, as in others, Bathsheba cannot be judged by typical standards. Further, it will be shown that she did not lack inventiveness in finding alternate ways to occupy her time. In the final analysis, one fact is clear. Bathsheba was glaringly atypical. Then I have in my notes, (laughs) dun-dun-dun!
1: I'm not going to bother with helping the maids. It's why we
0: hired them. (laughs) Just thinking of always the family tradition of cleaning up before the cleaning lady comes. (laughs) <laughs> I never had a cleaning lady come, just for a little while in my childhood, and then a, a very short, brief period of time in my adulthood. Very brief. It was for like one semester when I had a really rough semester. Man,
1: I need to hit the lottery and get me a cleaning lady.
0: I know, I desperately need one too. So the Spooners have their first child, Elizabeth, born in the second year of marriage. I know. I know. The there's only... no
1: creativity with these names. I, I have a sister named Elizabeth and an aunt and my daughter now.
0: Yeah. We have a whole entire story with a cast of characters and there's like four names. And that's it. So the child was born in the second year of their marriage. There's some really interesting stuff on birthing that Noon gives us. She would, of course, as we would expect, have only women attending her. And it was common to give out groaning cakes and groaning beer in exchange for help during the groaning time, which was when you were in labor. Also, maybe the, the groaning beer might help the father a little bit. You know what? I feel
1: like the mom needs the more help there, though.
0: But also consider the fact that unless they had servants, the heavily pregnant woman was the one preparing all this food and beer Making all this bread and beer for the people that are going to come over and help her groan. Yeah, <laughs> fuck all that. Yeah, right? I tried making one loaf of bread during the pandemic, and that was that. I, ha-
1: I had this thing when I was pregnant that if my husband would ask me for anything I didn't want to do, I would stare at him and go, I am growing a foot. <laughs> and then he would just leave me alone. And, like, I know I'm, I'm not pregnant anymore, but I really wish I could still just yell that at people <laughs> randomly. <laughs>
0: Would be nice if you could get that bonus without the actual (laughs) issues of being pregnant. No future groaning. Yes. The Spooner said baby Joshua in 1770, baby John in 1773, although he died after three weeks. And in addition to that loss, everything's really not sunshine and roses in the Spooner family because of this political schism between them. As we said, Bathsheba's father, Timothy, was a staunch loyalist to the crown. And it looked like Joshua Spooner started having some more patriotic, patriot leanings, I guess we would want to say. So Bathsheba was loyal to her father, who was loyal to the crown. So her politics were on one side and his were on the other. That can cause some dissension in a relationship. And her father was also starting to be more and more of an island with his loyalist loyalties. This culminated in him accepting a role as a counselor for the colony in 1774, and as a counselor, he was appointed by King George III himself. Now, this was not how it had always been. The colonies had been more self-governing. Prior to this, counselors would be chosen by the general court. But the king started to see, like, uh, these stirrings of independence revolution. He was like, I better put my own people on the council so I can make sure that my agenda gets stuck to. Meanwhile, Bathsheba was pregnant with baby number four and living away from the tavern. And her neighbors, they were privy to her political leanings. Noon said, quote, most of her neighbors were patriots. And even if she could have kept her political beliefs to herself which apparently she could not, whenever any of these neighbors met her, their recognition of her was less Bathsheba Spooner than Bathsheba, daughter of Timothy Ruggles. I like the sarcasm in there. You know me, I like a good sarcastic, especially when it's set off by M-dashes like that. This is another terrible marriage here between Bathsheba and Joshua. There are hints that there could have been abuse, but we don't really have any corroboration on that fact. They just really didn't like each other. They didn't get along. And a contemporary said, in retrospect, Very little harmony and cordiality has subsisted between her and her husband for many years. She has long cherished a hatred in her bosom.
1: Well, okay, so I had in my notes that her dad, Timothy Ruggles, eventually got, like, forced to flee to Canada.
0: Yeah, first New York, though.
1: Yeah, She wanted to go visit him because it's her dad. She's her dad's favorite kid. She's really close. And her husband forbade it. Mm. That being said, Bathsheba was independent, strong-willed. Like, she's been raised to think for herself, which was super uncommon at the time. Because as a wife, you're supposed to be just quiet and dim and... In the background. In the background and just listening to whatever your husband says. And she is not that lady. And I think that's part of it. But there was also rumors that her husband was a drunk and he would get drunk and then become physically abusive when he came home.
0: Yeah. I mean, it sounds like that was entirely possible. And we've had a couple cases we've talked about in recent times where abuse was just kind of the norm. You know, the, the quote from the Gouffet case... About, you know, women being like meat. The more you, like, smack them, the tenderer they get. (laughs) Whatever that was. Yeah, it was pretty much like, the more you beat your wife, the more she'll obey. Yeah, yeah. Well, because you're literally beating her into submission. Quite literally, yes. yes. So, yeah, it's not a really happy household. And you can see this as just a a reflection of the larger conflicts going on in each colonial town during this time period, because you had a political upheaval and lots of passion regarding where your loyalties lie and where your neighbor's loyalties lie. And so the patriots and the Tories had a lot of strife between them. Towns are also becoming unsettled. It's not happy times really anywhere, because everybody is being forced to pick a side. And there's just a lot of passion surrounding this because it's your future and existence on the line and self-government and independence. These are things that are being taken away. Or for people who are loyal to the crown, it's sort of like your, your history being taken away and the person you trust as a leader being, you know, threatened to be taken away.
1: Yeah, and, th- and this was really a case, like, I think that at the time everybody knew it was going to come down to a fight and you kind of almost had to take a tally of who was on which side to know who was going to be your enemy. What sides did you have to watch your back
0: from? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Especially when there's, you know, discussions of different activities that they could perhaps do going on in taverns and such. You really don't want the wrong person overhearing it. So you have to know what people's political leanings are. And it was, yeah, it was a very, very divisive time. We don't know anything. That, that, we don't know anything about that. <laughs> no, not at all. Don't know, don't know how that feels. As an example, this was a, a fabulous story that Noon told. I mean, well, not fabulous for one person. In the town next to Brookfield, where the Spooners lived, the Patriots started to question the loyalties of their pastor, who had been with them for 25 years. Good Lord. Oh, Well, (laughs) dang, we need a bell or something. (laughs) One of us makes an accidental pun. It's usually involving religion. And one of us says, oh God, or Jesus Christ, or good Lord.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's never intentional
0: when it comes to religion. It just happens. It's just these are our normal responses to things. See, he'd been there for 25 years, as long as Mama Bathsheba had been giving birth. So there was an attempt to dismiss him, and it was put to a vote, but the majority of the church council voted in his favor. So the local patriots were like, if the government and the church council isn't going to do it, I guess it's up to us, you know, if you want something done right. You got to do it yourself. So they threw stones at his carriage and left him a little gift on his doorstep of tar and feathers. And so he was like, okay, so how exactly do I word this resignation? I don't know, because I've been in the same place for 25 years. And he left town. Well, yes. Pretty obvious threats? Yeah, I mean, if the, the threat to tar
1: and feather is enough. Because if, if he were actually tarred and feathered, I, just so people get a good idea of this historically, they would dump boiling tar on you. And it's not something from the cartoons where they dumped the tar and the feathers and you'd run around like a chicken. Most of the time you fucking died.
0: I mean, it's not great. There were people that survived it, certainly. And I think there were, I'm just kind of spitballing here, but I feel like, or maybe I've heard or read this somewhere, but I feel like there were literally degrees because they might, if they're feeling merciful or if, you know, maybe your crime in their eyes wasn't too bad, they might let the tar cool down some. So yeah,
1: so it would just
0: stick to you and not burn your flesh from your bones. Yeah, but if they're really pissed off, then they're just as soon gonna take that tar right off the fire and dump it on you. you Yeah, but I
1: mean, even still, even if it's cooled down, if they get it over your face, you have the possibility of suffocation, blindness, all sorts of lifelong effects should you survive, if you survive. Yeah, snort up some of that
0: tar into your sinuses. That'll be fun.
1: Yeah, and I, I feel like a lot of people don't realize how
0: dangerous that practice really was. Because we see it as just this funny thing where somebody's running around Like it happens in
1: Looney Tunes. Beep, beep. And then they run away. Yeah. Exactly. I didn't mean to
0: Roadrunner that. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's fine. That's fine. I love it when you Roadrunner things. So that's going on. You can see that's just an example of the tensions that were coming up from neighbor to neighbor, from pastor to, what do you call a person who goes to church? Parishioner. Parishioner, thank you. From pastor to parishioner. Catholic school. There you go. I'm not even going to edit it out because you uh, came in clutch there. (laughs) Thank you. And your religious education.
1: (laughs) I'm just trying to, like... I'm just trying to wrap my head around this, and all I can think is, well, if they kicked out the priest, who's sitting in the best pew now? Yeah, right? Did they even have anyone to run services, or was it just one of the patriots that's like, I'm going to talk to you guys about God?
0: Yeah, I didn't really get much on the aftermath there. I'm curious. They probably just got in another preacher who was more to their leanings politically. I wonder if they had a questionnaire. <laughs> what are your political leanings before we let you know if you have this job? Pop quiz. Meanwhile, Bathsheba's father, Timothy, was remaining staunch in his loyalties, and uh, that was fanning the flames a little bit with his enemies. He wanted to start up a militia to defend against patriots. He called them, quote, bullies, a mob without order or discipline. Well, and
1: that's the funny thing about loyal people is they tend to stay loyal to whatever cause it is that they believe in with their whole heart. Mm Mm-hmm. Just kind of how that works.
0: Well, I mean, you have that on both sides. He does believe in, you know, the monarchy with all of his whole heart, just as, you know, some of his neighbors, many of his neighbors, believe that, you know, they deserve independence with all their whole heart. It's, you, you can't, I can't necessarily fault anyone on either side, except for the fact that they all took it pretty far sometimes. I mean, obviously there was a war, yeah, but when, yeah. You're, when you're driving the pastor out of town by essentially threatening his life and throwing stones at his carriage, I think as a neighbor to neighbor, as a town, maybe you need to just rethink a couple things. But we
1: even have that today where people just get so wrapped up in this. And it's like, if you believe this politically, then you're an awful person. And it doesn't make anybody an awful person. It just means you've got different opinions, different values, different things that, that you find are deal breakers that somebody else does not find as a deal breaker. And and long ago. I mean, I think this helps prove how long ago we lost track of that and the ability to see our neighbors as
0: neighbors and not just one viewpoint. Exactly, as human beings and not as just a walking opinion. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. You're very you're very right and uh, it's I think it's the world would be a better place if we could start to remember that you know everybody is Human. human and is has a, a right to their beliefs and opinions that we ourselves kind of enshrined within our own laws so yes.
1: do you believe that you have a right to think and say whatever you want to think and say hell yeah then everybody else does too god damn it i mean i have a podcast for crying out loud right <laughs> what do you think this we do everything is every all week? about freedom of
0: speech <laughs> yes <laughs> the government cannot shut us down, and they wouldn't really bother. We're not big enough.
1: Yeah, but they <laughs> they really could if they wanted to. Yeah, actually, they kind of
0: could. Yeah. <laughs> Anyhow, so. the This Bathsheba's father's stance against the patriots did not end well for him. His estate was raided. He wasn't there for it. Mama Bathsheba was. Poor Mama Bathsheba. Poor woman, yes. The patriots took all the weapons and poisoned one of his best stallions. What's with killing the animals, guys? I know, right? They were seen more as commodities, and definitely the whole pet thing wasn't as, as established as it is now. So back in Brookfield, Bathsheba had her last baby. Bathsheba really just ran out of creativity there. In 1775, in the winter, and just three months and two days later, the Revolutionary War would begin. Now the first fighting was around Lexington and Concord, about sixty to seventy miles from the Spooners.
1: That's still too close for comfort, in my opinion.
0: I mean, considering how slow people had to travel that day, it's, it probably felt a world away, you know. And you wouldn't even you might not even know about it for a couple of days until word slowly spreads out. Yeah, but I mean, like now that would be terrifying. Oh yeah, now I would not like that. No, no, I don't. I don't want any battles within many hundred miles of my house. So, and then back in Bathsheba's hometown, the town finally was like, all right, we're done with you, Ruggles. And they uh, auctioned off his property, as they did with dozens of other loyalists. His property included 30 horses, 30 cattle, sheep, swine, and most of the estate his wife was allowed to keep the house for a little while. And two months after that, Ruggles fled off to New York, which was... There were more safe havens for loyalists during the war, but he was essentially living in exile. You know, he was Napoleon Bonaparte on Elba. So some little anecdotes that Noon gives us about the war. This one is... hmm. Oh, boy. All right. Quote, Only the dead found reprieve, but even at its last, the body might still suffer indignities. Also in Pennsylvania, the story was about Pennsylvania... Lieutenant E. Elmer wrote in his journal of a scene something diverting, though of a tragic nature. Soldiers from New Jersey had dug two graves from the frozen earth and returned with their bodies, only to discover that Pennsylvania soldiers had used the holes to bury their own. A heated dispute ensued. The Pennsylvania regiment refused to disinter their men, so the New Jersey soldiers dug up the offending corpses, throwing them under a heap of brush and stones. There you have it. Pennsylvania and New Jersey. We've been at war for almost 250 years. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Now we're going to move to a little bit north of Salem, uh, the town of Topsfield, and talk a little bit about the Ross family as another character is about to enter the world of the Spooners. Yeah, he is. Yeah, he is. He's going to enter something. So... The Ross family sent several family members to the first battles, and they probably lived off of income from the orchards on their farm. Noon points out that they wouldn't have necessarily sold just the fruit, but alcohol made from the fruit, like cider, applejack, peri, brandy, and naturally wine, of course. So Ezra Ross... The Ross family had had 16 children, all told, and Ezra was the youngest surviving child at this time. What is with these crazy amounts of
1: children? Like, I understand birth control wasn't a thing, but oh, my vagina.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And you got to have kids to work the land. Oh, And you got to have backups for those kids when the first kids die. I guess, but jeez. It's hard. It's hard work, and... I mean, I'm not just talking about the, the laboring on the farm. I'm talking about the laboring the women are doing too. 16. They have to provide literally the labor.
1: And you have know what? Some you, you could
0: have changed that. You could, they have to provide litters. Yes, yes. They have to labor litters. So Ezra was 14 or when the fighting started, and he was the only boy left on the farm at this time. Still, despite his young age, he later was considered, quote, altogether of the most interesting character. He was of respectable parentage, also prepossessing in his personal appearance. End quote. So he was, I guess, a a handsome lad with, uh, you know, could talk to. Just nice, I guess, sort of. In the winter of 1775, he joined up with a local militia, they got a temporary discharge about a year later, possibly due to injury or illness. They were really just sucked at keeping records. Right, it's a militia. True, 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 true. At the very least, he was marching home to Massachusetts in December, over 300 miles. And if he wasn't sick when he left, he got sick on the way. He just kept trudging and trudging and trudging. But he couldn't make it home to Topsfield. He could only make it as far as Brookfield. And then he just couldn't go another step. But lucky for him, there was Bathsheba Spooner. And she invited him in and cared for him through his illness. Noon estimates that Ezra spent about 10 weeks there Although um, he does careful to note that their relationship was probably strictly nurse and patient over those weeks. That that wouldn't stay that way, but during that time. And Joshua Spooner was around during this time. He befriended Ezra as well. So Ezra's kind of like becoming friends with the Spooner family, essentially. Spring finally came. Ezra headed home, which was about 90 miles away. He spent the spring and summer there, and then he left in August. It seemed like he was supposed to go back to the military, maybe, or militia. But he seems to have gone back to Brookfield and Bathsheba's home for a few months. So his military records have him serving during that particular time period. But since he was with the militia, he didn't necessarily have to be with the army during that time. And people, we have like records of people spotting him in Brookfield during that period. Other records, including his signature on documents that place him there. So we're pretty sure he was like, yeah, I'm going to go back to the war and then went to Brookfield to Bathsheba. And the following summer, he would tell his story to a reverend. And this is in my words. I wanted to put this in my words. (sighs) Mrs. Spooner was heading to her hometown and I was feeling, you know, pretty low. Before she left, Mrs. Spooner asked me, why the long face? I said, well, you know, I'm homesick, duh. She said that in her humble opinion, I just wanted someone to live with. I said, yeah, sure, that'd be nice. She asked if someone like her would be nice to live with. I said, well, you know, if you like the idea, then I like it. And then when she came back from Hardwick, and here I'm gonna go into direct quotes, quote, she gave me an invitation to defile her marriage bed, which I accepted, end quote. Yowza. It's it's interesting though, because it's, it's misspelled in the original documents as expected, instead of accepted, both could be possible, I expected her to ask me to defile her marriage bed, but the more logical I think is accepted. And also with spelling back then. I mean, I found recipes back then, and um, I'm going to just spit all over the microphone when I do my recipe. Oh, that's going to be fun. There's all the uh, F's for S's. <laughs> so, the uh, everything was a little different as far as the language was concerned. So, yes, she asked me to defile her marriage bed. Now, that... I dare anyone to go into a bar and use that as a pickup line. Or just put it on your Tinder profile. <laughs> I don't have Tinder. I mean, Neil, but I'm tempted to try it as a pickup line in a bar. <laughs> go for it. So we know all this was going on, this uh, hanky panky, I suppose, at least in November, if not sooner. A housekeeper stated that the two of them were in bed sometime during that month when Joshua was away, but Joshua came home early and surprised them, just like every single story of a cheating spouse you've ever read. Across centuries. It's like they started the trend. Bathsheba had to hop out of bed to let him in. So she hops out of bed with her young lover, might I add and goes and uh, lets her husband
1: into the house. He was like half her age. At the time that he was 16, she was 32.
0: Yeah. They were there was quite the age difference in there. And it was uh it's a little weird. I guess though he is like, you know, seeing war. Yeah. I mean, I don't like the power differential in the age difference, but if we're going to let people go to war, so this this is like way back when um, I was
1: I was joining the Air Force a long time ago. And uh, I was not quite 18, but I was going to MEPS to get all the, the testing and the physicals and all that. So basically, I'm signed up for the military, but I'm not old enough to go. Mm-hmm. And I remember stopping at this little shop in MEPS and trying to get a pack of cigarettes. And I, I knew that I was going to get carded. And the guy just looks at me and he goes... If you are old enough to sign up to fight for our country, you are old enough to do whatever the hell you want. And just hands me the cigarettes and I was like that was cool.
0: <laughs> nice. Cool. And it's it's kind of true, you know. So this is going on. They're, uh, you know, knocking colonial boots or whatever. And knocking now- colonial <laughs> boots. <laughs> Show subtitle probably. We'll see. And Noon tells us that there were, in Massachusetts, a total of 40 divorces during the period of 1639 to 1692. So that's uh, less than one year in a whole entire state slash colony. I guess colony at the time. That number would almost triple in the next century or so. It was over 200% more or 250% more, but still the circumstances are not in Bathsheba's favor as she has to, I'm not going to go into the nitty gritty details, but basically she has to have two reasons to divorce him, whereas he only needs to have one. She doesn't have any reasons. Maybe the abuse might help, but... mm, She she doesn't have anything
1: she can prove. So the abuse is rumored. We don't have evidence. There were also rumors that Joshua was sleeping with some of the servants. No evidence. Rumors are not good enough coming from a woman at this time. Oh,
0: certainly not. Yeah, You would need hard proof. She had none. And not to mention, of course, there's the stigma. Oh, my God. It was nearly impossible for a woman to get a divorce. And when she did, she was kind of considered an oddity, an outcast. I mean, even, God, even in the 90s, for God's sakes, (laughs) I had... This group of some of the popular girls when I was in high school, I think I was like a sophomore or a junior or something, they invited me over to watch uh, a movie at one of their houses after school one day. And I was like, oh, yeah, like this was the first. This never happened. I would talk to them occasionally in the halls or in class, but we weren't friends. We didn't do things outside of school. And so it was like four or five of us girls. I think we were watching Romeo and Juliet, the one with uh, Leonardo DiCaprio. And... um. Somehow we get on the topic of divorce. And I figure out that none of their parents are divorced. But I believe one of them, her parents, were in a bad state. Their relationship was not going well. And so basically it became, instead of watching the movie, it became an hour and a half of them questioning me, because my parents had been divorced since I was in eighth grade, about how divorce worked and how I felt. I did not like it. (laughs) Impromptu therapy session. They never invited me back again, which I think is more them because they were using me as sort of like information on uh, to figure out what to expect. What what is my life going to be like if my parents divorce, you know? And I I honestly think this was some weird engineered plan where they were like, okay, well, we don't know what divorce is like because we are all have, you know, intact parents' marriages. So we need to find a child of divorce. Ooh, there's one. (gasps) Get her, get her, grab her. Lure her with Shakespeare. (laughs) They did. They really, oh my God. It's so diabolical. I just realized they did lure me with Shakespeare. They knew you were a nerd. (laughs) They knew how to get you over. They really did. Holy shit. This was a full-fledged special op.
1: (laughs) It really was. This was teenage special ops.
0: These girls needed to be in the freaking CIA.
1: You fell right into their (laughs) trap. I really did. Oh my
0: goodness. Oh, it's amazing with the, the luxury of hindsight and somebody else's, you know, looking at the situation, how it's clear some things can become. And that is incredible. Okay, so divorce. Stigma in uh, the 1700s and um, a reason for people to want to briefly socialize with you in the 1990s. <laughs> there we go. There you go. Just briefly, though. Okay. So, there's also, in addition to that, I mean, everything's shitty. Everything's just shitty. There's this atmosphere of war and uncertainty. Again, something we can in no way relate to. Nope. Nothing in the world seems similar to that right now. And she's got a sucky relationship that's dragging her down. And so, it's really not shocking that she would take another man to bed. Or, in this case, we're going to have to be. Yeah, I was going to say. Let's yeah. say Boy. <laughs> yeah, I I feel
1: uncomfortable calling a sixteen year old a man. I can't.
0: Yeah, he's still he's still definitely a, a boy. War or no war. I mean, she she could have picked somebody a little closer to her age. I, I'm definitely gonna toss that dart at her, right in the eye. So, um, the uh, noon says towns were full of women, children, and old men, devoid of most males in their youth, who returned only for brief periods between battles. The uncertainty of the war's outcome contributed to the general malaise. An eventual British victory might make life unbearable, but an American one promised little stability. So, at least for a little while, depending on what changes and who wins the war, your life's just not going to be good. The future is not looking bright, and you don't have to wear shades. (laughs) So, So this is kind of the state of things. And then along come two other soldiers. These are Brooks and Buchanan. They are prisoners of war from the British army who had been captured. And then they escaped capture. They seem to be heading to Canada. At least that was the plan. As they were passing by the Spooner house, somebody called out to them. This was Alexander Cummings. He was a British Army deserter who was living in the Spooner household and doing odd jobs for the family. It's really a crazy mix. It's an insane mix of all these different soldiers, some deserters, POWs, militia, deserter, not sure what to call Ezra, but it's just this weird, like, let's just invite everybody into the house and then, you know, uh, into the bed. Because he was very likely uh, had a relationship going on with Bathsheba as well already. Well, so Bathsheba openly
1: admitted to, at this point, just having a complete and total aversion to her husband. Mm-hmm. Did not want to be near him. But here's all these sexy soldier men. I don't know what I'm going to see another gentleman.
0: Come on in. Yeah, basically just walk past her house and you're in. Especially dressed in a soldier's uniform. Maybe
1: you got to swing the hips a little bit.
0: Just Maybe, a little. Uh, yeah. Yeah. A little pop in your step. <laughs> <laughs> so, Alexander Cummings invited these men in, and he said that Bathsheba had a special fondness for the British Army since her family was in it. This is entirely speculation on my part, but I kind of wonder if maybe Cummings was tired of her or was trying to foist her off on somebody else in some way. Like I said, just total speculation, but it's strange. When you have a setup like that where you're doing odd jobs for the family and you're sleeping with the wife, you're getting some on the regular, it's strange to invite potential competition for that in and be like, oh, well. He wanted the out.
1: Yeah. I because think... I bet the more he worked there, the more he and Josh maybe had a couple inside jokes or something. And he's like, this feels so wrong. I need out of this.
0: Yeah. he's He seems to have a, a moral compass here. And so he's trying to. Get out of it without, you know, at least, at least get out of the relationship and just kind of, like, replace himself with somebody else. He's like, oh, they're soldiers. She likes British soldiers. Hey, hey, guys, come in. Come in. I got a lady. Uh, you're going to want to go upstairs and take your pants off.
1: <laughs> but, well, no, also, though, just, like, brother in arms. Yeah. You need a place to stay. You need a place to hide. She's your lady. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's true. That's true. So, it's just, that's just, yeah, my, my thought is that this wasn't just him being friendly or nice. This was also him trying to get back onto a little bit more of a straight and narrow path and, and feeling uncomfortable with the situation, something along those lines. It's it was just a, a guess. win-win yeah. in a lot of ways. Just a guess. So the soldiers, Brooks and Buchanan, had breakfast with Bathsheba. It's noted that they would have been eating from the same wooden trenches with a single drinking glass between them all. That was very common and had been for quite a long time. I listened to an audiobook about life during the medieval ages, and yeah, like, everybody sharing, like, the same drinking glass. Mm-hmm. It's horrific. Uh, yeah. Uh, no, thank you. <laughs> and so, Ezra, as to whether he was there, he may have been off on a trip with Joshua Spooner at the time. And Spooner went off on another trip in February 1778. Right before that trip, Ezra Ross put nitric acid in Joshua Spooner's grog. I think that we have been over 150 episodes of this show, and I have never gotten to say grog in a serious contextual manner. I've never actually gotten to say somebody was drinking grog. There you go. Here we go. He was drinking grog, but it was poisoned. So nitric acid is very corrosive. It irritates the skin, the eyes, the mucous membranes. Uh, The other side effects can be nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, abdominal pain. It kind of depends on how you intake it. But the thing was that grog was heated. So when nitric acid is heated, it creates fumes that would make it almost entirely impossible to drink more than a, a half sip of the grog. And that's how it was for Joshua Spooner. A local said, Quote, Spooner drank of it, but perceiving a disagreeable taste swore by God that had an enemy been near, he should think they had attempted to poison him and at the same time hove the remainder into the fire. I think he's just being paranoid. Certainly mm-hmm. nobody's out to get him. No, who would do such a thing? Certainly not any of the men sleeping with his wife. So Spooner and Ezra Ross took their trip A friend of Spooner's joined them for part of it last minute. No attempt seems to have been made on Spooner's life on the trip. Seems like that might have been part of the plan originally, though, that Ezra was supposed to take care of this while he and Spooner were on the road. But in the end, Ross ended up going to see his parents for a little while. And while they were away, the reason we think that, you know, Ezra was supposed to take care of Spooner on the road Was Bathsheba told Buchanan and possibly Brooks that she did not even expect her husband to return at all? Quote, as there was one Mr. Ross with him who had an ounce of poison which he had promised he would give to Mr. Spooner at the first convenient opportunity. So, unless she's lying her ass off, there was a plan in place. And why would you lie about that if there was no plan? It doesn't make any sense. So, Spooner comes home. Without Ross, and imagine his surprise when he finds all these British soldiers in his house. And imagine her surprise when she sees her husband coming through the door. Exactly. She said that she, she said his unexpected return just completely stumped her. I mean, he's supposed to be dead. Yeah. Not only that, he's not supposed to be coming home now, and he's not supposed to be coming home at all. And here I am with all these men around me. And so here's the conversation that happened uh, between Joshua and uh, the soldiers, Buchanan specifically. Joshua, how came you here, Buchanan, to warm ourselves? Joshua, Bathsheba, who are these men? She says Sergeant Buchanan is Alexander's cousin. That's Alexander Cummings, the deserter living with them as a servant. And basically, it seems like Spooner's reaction to this, at least from the outside, is, well, okay. All right, I guess. Then he goes to the local tavern. Everybody knows is where, where you go to get your gossip. Everybody knows that's where you go. And uh, so he's asking around, trying to find out what's been going on at his house while he was away. And also checking to see how much alcohol his household has been buying from the tavern since he left. Because that will also be an indicator of something. You know, are one person living there or are four people living there? And is she getting them all drunk all the time? So he goes back to the house. He tries to kick Buchanan and Brooks out. They're not having it. So he pulls Bathsheba into another room and says, look, you get them out of the house or I will call the police, which is the time the version of police they had was the Committee of Safety and Correspondence.
1: I love names like that so much. Well, and I have I had one article that actually said, ironically, of all the things to accuse them of, Joshua Spooner accused them of stealing a spoon. Yes, yes, that that got <laughs> it
0: and is that ironic. stuck
1: in my brain yeah. and made me like just giggle.
0: Yeah, because they did stick around, and they're all talking with each other about how they want to get Spooner out of the way, and so with this kind of imbalance of opinions. You have one person saying, I want you all out, and you have all the other people saying we want to stay. They ended up winning. And so he said, Okay, you can stay the night and then you're gonna leave in the morning. And it's a really this is this is super tense and awkward. So he Spooner was like, I'm not gonna sleep in my bedroom. And instead he sat up in the sitting room all night with two companions he told them he thought Brooks especially was up to no good. And that's when he said, like, I think one of them stole my spoon. And I'm a spooner. I need my spoons. I need my spoons. Plus some pewter, I guess. One of these companions, who's supposed to be his friend, is being like a weird double agent. Going back and forth between the kitchen where the soldiers are and the sitting room where Spooner is. He goes and tells the soldiers about Spooner's concerns about the theft. And they're like, Pfft, you know. If we wanted to steal something, we would have stolen it already. And uh, also, we've been doing his wife. They searched for the spoon, and Joshua had just left it somewhere. <laughs> like, it was just in the last place he had seen it.
1: He carried the spoon into... I don't know. Like, how? why do you even keep this track of spoons?
0: <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, but silver. Silver was very, um, you know, silver silverware, silver flatware, I guess we would call it, was very much, you know, something that would be stolen from people because you can take that silver melt it down. It's no longer recognizable and you can, you know, sell it or whatever. I suppose so, but I'm still like, I don't even know how many spoons I have in my house. Yeah, I'm not keeping track. I don't, I don't have a spreadsheet. I, you could walk away with, with several of my spoons and I probably wouldn't notice for a while, so. Yeah. But I'm not a spooner, so. Well, and also we don't have real silver, silverware. There's also that, yes. Yeah. And so Spooner then is still being, he's feeling real suspicious still and and wants to be careful. So he goes and gets his money box from its hiding place, proceeds to sleep on the sitting room floor, basically using his money box as a pillow. Meanwhile, Beth Sheep is probably in the kitchen like, I'm sorry. He's just kind of weird sometimes when I have a whole bunch of soldiers over for an orgy, you know, (laughs) this whole thing is just like weird and uncomfortable. It's very uncomfortable and very awkward. So the other men seem to get drunk, and Buchanan made more comments about killing Spooner. The men do leave the next day. Spooner gives Cummings $5 and says, you know, use this to take care of yourself and the, and the cousin and the other random person that nobody explained to me who he is. Because <laughs> he's like, oh, Buchanan is Cummings' cousin, and then never explained Brooks, as far as I know. And they go straight to the tavern with it of course. They drink up. Uh, Cummings goes back to the Spooner house and then it goes and finds them after Spooner went to bed. They head back to the Spooners. They eat, drink, and be merry while Spooner is asleep. And then they go out and they sleep in the barn and Bathsheba is like, okay, breakfast service, knock knock. Brings them breakfast in the morning. It's very much too cozy And feels, it's definitely, it's not rational because it's a violation of the marriage one way or the other. But for some reason, it feels like even more of a violation when he's right in the house. You know, when he's sleeping and it's literally right under his nose. It feels like more of a violation than when he's, you know, a town away or something. It's not rational in any way. It's just something about the brazenness, the audaciousness of it. It's almost rubbing it in his face. Yeah. As dirty as that sounds, it wasn't actually.
1: (laughs) But without actually touching him. Yeah, yeah. Rubbing it in his face without touching him.
0: They did this the next day. Again, the same routine, although their spree at the tavern was likely funded by Bathsheba. Then Joshua Spooner has gone off for the day. He went to get oats with the hired boy, who, by the way, has also mentioned to Brooks that maybe they should team up and murder Spooner. Everybody wants to kill him so badly that I'm starting to really wonder. (laughs) Like, how does he treat people that literally everyone wants to kill him? Or is it Bathsheba telling everybody what she'll give them if they kill him? And so everybody wants to get in on that action, you know, which is it, or it can be a combination. He can be a total, he could have been a total asshole, and they, there was also the added temptation of, you know, money, sex, whatever, if they killed him.
1: It has to be both, it has to be both, because I feel like if, if Joshua Spooner was a lovely fella, then when you would come at him with something about we need to off him, they'd be like, no, he's such a good guy nobody is defending him at all. They're like, yeah, I'll be in. Exactly,
0: yeah. Everybody's really eager to jump in on this. So, yeah, there's definitely something about that that raises some, raises some questions. The guys, Brooks and Buchanan, they were able to hang out in the house for the afternoon, eat all the good food, drink all the good drinks. And then, of course, when Spooner comes home, they sneak out to the barn and spend the night there. Now we have Cummings and the hired boy, Parker, teaming up and hatching a plan and presenting it to Brooks. So I guess I retract my ideas about Cummings' moral compass. He is getting in on this now. I think he has more of a moral compass than most people involved in this story, and we'll get to why in a bit. But at the moment, he's on the same level as everybody else. They're all hatching plans to kill Spooner. So the plan that they present to Brooks is to kill Spooner while he sleeps in his bed, and then Bathsheba will give us a whole bunch of stuff. She'll give us Spooner's watch, his buckles, some, some cloth that we can make a suit of clothes out of, and $1,000, which is $20,000 today. And Bathsheba is also, she's not absent from this. She is in on this planning. Her first idea, kill him in bed, put his body in the well, And the neighbors will think he just fell in. It was an accident, you know, they happen. Brooks is not really up for that because it seems like every time there's this idea of we should kill Spooner, somehow he ends up being the one doing all the action. And so they try again. Cummings drops off their breakfast in the barn and now he has Bathsheba's latest brainstorm of how to kill her husband. They can make Spooner think that one of his horses was sick that would draw him out to the stables and then they could kill him when he walked in and then just put the body on the ground. It looks like he was maybe kicked by the horse, maybe trampled, something like that. It's like when you, you know, invite a divorced child who loves literature over to watch a uh, Shakespeare movie. Yeah. That's so very much the same. Lore him. Yes. Brooks does not like this plan either. He's a picky one. He tells uh, Parker, the stable boy, to just, you know... I don't want to piss off Bathsheba, so you pretend that I did all that and tried to get Spooner down here and just say Spooner wouldn't come down. And, and then that'll be that. that. That plan will have failed and it's a no-go and we'll move on to something else I can deal with. She had told the soldiers that she had a bunch of money. She needed to essentially get cashed in. You didn't have cash right from the start, but she had $300 and 20 pounds. We're still kind of in between, as you can tell. So the three of them get together and they head to a nearby town, somewhat nearby. It's a couple hours. And they head to a tavern. She was going to cash in some money, $300 and 20 pounds. And so they're staying at the tavern because taverns generally also functioned as an inn of sorts. And so she's staying at her sister's she basically is just kind of giving a little bit of money here and there. She gave Buchanan six or seven dollars and enough cloth to make a shirt. It seems like she just kind of doesn't have any access to the family money, and so she's having to either beg, borrow, or steal in order to even give them a little bit. And there's this weird thing with a handkerchief. Nobody can really quite figure out what exactly happened, but Bathsheba gave Buchanan a letter from somebody and then Buchanan tried to give her a handkerchief and she said, God damn the handkerchief. I will not touch it. And this handkerchief had been a point of contention for several days now. No one knows exactly why, but it may have been associated with yet another soldier that she was flirting with. That's the best guess. And then it sort of became like a jealousy thing, a rival thing. And then she's just like, screw your stupid handkerchief. I don't care. She's still on Buchanan's side, but she's just not having it with this handkerchief bullshit. I guess. I feel like back in the
1: day, the ladies would give the gentleman her handkerchief. Yes, exactly. If, if yes, she wanted to
0: be like his intended. Mm-hmm. It was at the very least a flirtatious move or an invitation of sorts. I don't know how far it was a, a commitment, but it seemed like she, as far as I can remember, had given the handkerchief to the British soldier potentially. And then she probably p- had ordered a gross
1: of them. <laughs> she from had a,
0: Oriental Trading. She had 144 in a box in her closet, and every time she left, she just stuffed five in her purse.
1: <laughs> yeah, or in her bra, and she just like whip them out and, hey
0: soldier, yeah, hey she, soldier, just walking down the street and just tossing handkerchiefs left and right. You're kind of cute. <laughs> this is a white flag. It says I'm going to give it up. <laughs> My God. <laughs> Hey, I'm thinking in war metaphors.
1: (laughs) War metaphors, horror metaphors, (laughs) whatever you want to go. Whichever
0: direction, yeah. We're there. So yeah, there's this. It seems like they're having an argument, but they're also still kind of getting along. She's in and out of the tavern all day. She's doing this. She's doing that. And then she goes back to her sister's to spend the night. But she tells Buchanan on her way out, I have no paper money beyond what I've already provided. Still, I need you to procure some poison for Joshua. This is just like in public. The next morning Buchanan runs off and gets the poison. He gets calomel this time aka mercurous chloride. It's a powder that was generally used to purge the stomach or you know clear out the lower digestive system if you get my drift. Hmm. It's now used as a fungicide actually. It has the same deal as nitric acid as Noon notes you can't smell it or taste it until it's heated. So don't put it in the hot toddy. Yeah, yeah. No grog. Buchanan then proceeds to just divvy up the powder right there in, uh, in front of the tavern owner, the tavern mistress, and uh, her servant, possibly slave. And just like, like they don't exist. And Buchanan tells Bathsheba, he's giving her directions now, and he says... I want you to give Spooner a dose in the morning. And she does not. And they also have a little rendezvous in his room at the tavern, as one does when planning the murder of one's husband. And so Prudence, who was the, we don't know, slaver servant at the tavern, she saw them in Buchanan's room. Like, literally saw them. Going at it. Exactly. It was improper for her just to be in his room. A married woman in a single man's room. Any woman in a single man's room. Really, (laughs) yeah. Yeah. I mean, these people are on a registry, for God's sakes. (laughs) We text them more. She was also observed during the time the men stayed at the tavern. Sort of, all right, Brooks was being affectionate with her and she was very accepting of it and didn't seem in any way disgusted or thrown off. And she had no shame about it. She told the tavern owner, "Quote, Brooks has lived at my house and is as fond of me as he would be of a mother." Ew, Ew. right? It's yicky. February twenty-eighth. That's tomorrow in our time, and it's a couple of days ago in listener time, or even years ago. Who the hell knows? <laughs>
1: yeah, whenever you're listening.
0: <laughs> yeah. Bathsheba is back at the tavern in the morning. She requests to see Buchanan and she seems, she's got this kind of mood. It's kind of like she's urgent. Like, I got to get all this done and get out of here. So she told Buchanan, hey, I'm going to the general store and I want you both, you and Brooks to come with me because then I'll buy the tools that you need to get some blacksmithing work. That's what both of them were trying to do. He said, well, I'll just send Brooks because he's the one who needs the tool. He, He needs a file. I'm good. I've got my file. And he said, we'll come see you at your home Monday night, 11 p.m. And it's Saturday on this day. Then for some reason, they go spend a quick few minutes in the chamber together, as the tavern owner discreetly put it. And after that, the date changes to the next day. They're going to see her at, you know, 11 p.m. on Sunday. She's going to head home. I really loved... Uh, how evocative Noon's description, and you know I'm a sucker for clothes too. So just to set the scene, I'm going to uh, give you his description of her attire. Galloping along the snowy roads, Mrs. Spooner must have looked very elegant, dressed in a riding habit traditionally styled like that of a man's, a cutaway coat in red, moss green or blue with cuffs and collar. Over a simple dress, she likely wore a satin collar, complemented by a large beaver hat embellished with plumes and a brown ribbon band. A full skirt with sash tied into a large bow and back served as the top layer. A full ruffled kerchief, bowed pigtail, bowed pigtail, I'm not sure. And riding, bowed, because they had, they had bows on them, yes. And riding gloves completed her striking, if cumbersome, outfit. It's Very pretty. I mean, I don't have to like her to like her clothes. The timing worked out here pretty well. Or not, maybe, depending on your point of view. Ezra Ross was on his way uh, back to the Spooner house after two weeks at his family's home. And now it's said that the horse he was riding, which he'd borrowed from Spooner, was about to fall over when he got there because he rode back to the Spooner place at full tilt. I wonder if she must have sent him a message somehow. Right, it was 90 miles. So 90 miles in a day on a horse. That poor horse. We learned in our Western fiction unit of grad school that the average horse can actually only healthily manage about 35 miles a day. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it seems like he really... He said when he got there that the the horse's back was hurt. We don't know why he went so fast, but Noon does suggest that maybe lust. He was eager to get back into those petticoats. Although we'll find out he'd been a busy, busy boy back in, uh, back in Topsfield. Then he gets there, and he won't go in the house, ostensibly because he'd hurt Spooner's horse. So this hiding, in retrospect, has raised a lot of questions about his intentions. Was it really because of the horse? Was it because he was going to ambush Spooner to make up for his previous failures to kill the guy? Because he was like, oh man, Spooner's gonna come home, and Bathsheba's going to be pissed at me that I didn't get the job done. We don't know. But Noon says, quote, The full culpability of the 17-year-old remained uncertain in the months to come and is still one of the most tragic mysteries of the affair. Predictably, Ross has been cast as the impressionable youth led to ruin by the wicked Bathsheba. She got back a few hours after him, and uh, since she hadn't had sex in, like, you know, a, a minute, they very likely did it. Oh, yeah, by the way, she has her children living there. Then and I kept she... thinking, like, where are the kids during all of this? We don't always know their locations, but during the most important parts of the story that we'll be getting to quite soon, they were just in the kitchen, sleeping by the fire. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Great parenting. Mom of the year. Then all day Sunday, she hid Ross upstairs. So at 7 p.m. that night... Spooner was going out to dinner with friends at cool East Tavern. That's the same one where he'd gone after finding Brooks and Buchanan at his house. He walked there. It's really telling that no, nobody thought it was unusual that he was alone and without his wife. Noon says that really points to two different things, both how bad their marriage was and how much everybody knew it was bad. <laughs> so everybody's kind of like, oh, yep, yeah, there's Joshua Spooner alone. Can't blame him or no surprise, you know, depending on what they knew and what they felt. Bathsheba had borrowed a horse from an acquaintance for her little getaway with her two gentlemen, and she requested that Alexander Cummings take the horse back while Joshua was out to dinner. She possibly did this to keep the man she borrowed it from, who was a captain, from sending his servant to fetch the horse, because she had plans and she didn't want any outside interruptions. Well, and that's pretty smart, actually. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And so on Sunday, March 1st, Buchanan and Brooks get to the Spooner house around 8 instead of 11. So they get there about an hour after Spooner goes to dinner. They kind of are hanging around outside, not knowing whether they should go inside or not. And uh, Cummings comes outside to check out why are there two men standing in the yard and Brooks, you know, he figures out who they are, and Brooks says, Mr. Spooner should not come home a living man tonight. That's, some um, incriminating. So... <laughs> yeah, it seems like this is, according to Noon, our main evidence that the murder was premeditated. Brooks is saying this, but he hasn't really seen anyone but Buchanan with whom he discussed the murder... Since the prior day when Bathsheba left. So it seems like they made the plan the prior day on Saturday. It was like, okay, we'll come to your house at eight o'clock and kill your husband. And so Cummings goes inside. He tells Bathsheba that the soldiers are there. And then he goes to bed because he, know, he knows which way the wind blows. Yeah, watching his hands. I'm out. I'm out. <laughs> and so Bathsheba goes outside and tells the man, men that a Mr. Ross is in the house. He has a brace of pistols. He has promised me that he will kill Mr. Spooner when he returns from Coolie's. Come now. So now they're all in the. uh, Sorry, I I got a lot of innuendo on its way. Oh, good. Prepare yourself. I'm I'm, I yep. Gird your loins. Um, Girding my loins. (laughs) You hate that, and I love saying it. Now they're all hanging out in the parlor, where all good conspiracies reach their climax. And Ross is also waiting there. He whips it out, and by it I mean his pistol, (laughs) and says, Mr. Spooner should die by this tonight. There's some concern that a gun might draw too much attention. Brooks tells Ross, if you will help me, I will knock down Spooner. And Ross is, in the parlance of the times, DTF. He's down to force Spooner to the floor and then beat him to a pulp. You really do have that in your notes, don't you? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) If I think of it in the moment, I'm worried that I'll forget it when we're actually recording. (laughs) That's why I write things down. That's why anyone writes things down. I guess I have that in my notes. (laughs) I'm not just going to be like, oh, that'll come to me. No, I write write everything down. I have a million Post-it notes. All right, I think that's all of my sexual innuendos. I just had a little trail there where it just my brain went to a different place, I guess. There's a lot of sex in this story. You would can't you, blame me. Would you refer to that
1: as perhaps a happy trail?
0: Yeah, <laughs> there was maybe a happy trail. Maybe. So, then the men all had a nice dinner and some rum. Back at the tavern, Spooner has dinner with his friends. Then he leaves the tavern sometime between 8 and 9. The men at his home see him Coming. Brooks stands in the entryway with a 12-inch log he grabbed from the hearth.
1: Well, that one is just... its I know, that one's completely unintentional, but
0: the 12-inch log (laughs) is just... It is, yes, it is. But that's, I mean, foot-long wood? What am I supposed to say? Yes. (laughs) (laughs)
1: And now we know why Bathsheba was sleeping with him.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm sorry, that pun was just baked in, or innuendo, rather, I guess. Bathsheba stays in the kitchen with the sleeping children. She might have also been eating her dinner at this moment. My God. From the entryway, Brooks punches Spooner as he comes to the door and Spooner falls to the snow. Spooner yells, what is this? Murder! I mean, ask a question and answer it. I don't know what you need me for. Yeah, I mean, like, it was how they talked in the day, you know. It's much like you or I would be like, what the hell? if we walked up to our house and got punched, you know, if we weren't able to say it, we'd at least think it. Fair, fair. So before Spooner can get up, Brooks is on him, hands around his throat, trying to strangle Spooner. And we actually saw something very similar in my tiny that I did today, where it seems like he got impatient. And so he's like, screw this. He grabs the log, he smashes Spooner in the head with the log. So
1: much more effective. Okay, folks, for those of you who are not Patreons, just so you know, It takes five to seven minutes to strangle somebody to death. This is a long process. You can fuck in five to seven minutes. And that's how long it's gonna take somebody to choke by your hand. So choose wisely, folks. Crime tips from Amber. It's gonna be its own segment now. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Little tingly piano.
1: But, I mean, really, it's a long process. It's it's so much easier to bash him over the head with something hard. Something
0: hard. (laughs) You said it, not me. They, uh, he smashes Spooner in the head with the log. And finally, Ross and Buchanan join in. They just wreak havoc on the guy, quote, striking, beating, and kicking him upon the back, head, stomach, and throat. I mean, they're just, they're, it's, it's brutal. And right around 9 p.m. or just before, Spooner is dead. The men take Spooner's watch and shoes, although there is at least some flash of humanity here. When Buchanan takes the shoes off, he says later, I was instantly struck with horror and conscience, as well I might. Brooks and Ross take Spooner over to the well, and with quite a bit of difficulty, because it's winter and there's snow piled up and everything, they manage to throw him in. So Brooks and Ross hang around outside while Buchanan goes inside and Bathsheba goes to fetch her husband's money box. She just seems kind of in a weird fog. Like something about this night has completely changed her from somebody who was ordering around people to do a murder to somebody who's just like floating in a haze of unknowingness. And that's not out of any pity that's just kind of how the description seem to me that she just she becomes a different person and she's in this this weird foggy haze where she can't really think straight or she gets stuck on certain concepts like a broken record as we're gonna see and they're not really concepts that anybody who's trying to get away with murder should be uh should be repeating over and over so as she's holding the money box there's one of her servants mrs stratton passes the room and sees Bathsheba holding the money box. Now, Sarah Stratton later reported that Bathsheba pulled her by the hand and said, I hope Mr. Spooner is in heaven. This was a little new version, uh, we'll call it a a remix, of her usual mantra of, I wish old bogus was in heaven. Apparently what she called him, old bogus. Oh, okay. Oh, no. I don't know. Sure. And so she doesn't have a key to the money box, further proving that she didn't have access to the family finances. So they break it open. There's this weird distribution of the money. I don't quite get it. She's giving, she's got like two banknotes for $400 each. She gives those to Ross. She says, go get that cashed. Give that all to Brooks. Then she finds $243 in cash in the box. She gives that to Brooks. She takes the 800 back from Ross. It's like, before like Venmo and all that stuff, when you have eight people all trying to pay for their own dinner. Yeah. And money is changing hands. Somebody's like, do you have a five, do you have five ones? And there's just all this confusion. And it it always feels like something got mixed up somewhere along the line, but I'm, I just want to go home.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Like I'm trying to help somebody make change. And all of a sudden I've paid $23
0: for my $8 meal. And I'm like, wait, how'd that happen? I've been bamboozled. So, yes, there's this weird back and forth with the money kind of little shell game, it almost feels like. She gives Ross 40 pounds in banknotes and tells him to go buy fabric for a new riding dress. Eventually, she finds uh, three more bills. These are $8 bills. Gives those to be canon. I just wrote that down because there were $8 bills. <laughs> I love it. It's very strange. Like, what denominations did they have that I don't know about? I've heard of $2 bills. I've heard of $3 bills. I have never heard of $8 bills. Until now. Until now. Now, just note, she's giving away pretty much everything in the box. She can only, by law, inherit one third of Spooner's estate. Where the rest of it goes, I don't know. Probably to like his extended family or is saved for his children, maybe. It's hard to tell. Probably not saved for his children, though.
1: Probably like a brother or something. Nearest yeah. male relative, I would assume. Probably.
0: And that's only if she's not accused and convicted of his murder. <laughs> Obviously, she ain't getting shit if she is. So there's some burning of bloody clothes and the 12-inch log. Ha ha ha. Mm-hmm. And then Bathsheba gives the men some upspooner's Spooner's clothes to replace their burnt bloody ones. Alexander Cummings wakes up, comes downstairs to find quite the scene. There are clothes burning in the hearth, and you can smell the the burning wool and everything in the air. Brooks and Ross are still half naked, as they couldn't find enough clothes. And someone has the nerve to ask him, Alex, why do you look so sullen? I mean, it's like they're acting like this is totally normal. It's it's just befuddling. What's the matter, man? Yeah. Not used to seeing a... That are you naked, man? No? All right. All right. Well, we can change that. So Bathsheba offers... Offers Cummings her dead husband's shoes if he washes the blood off of them. And he's like, "Mm, no thanks. But Bathsheba's like, no, you and Mrs. Stratton go on out to the well and fetch some water and clean off the shoes. What? This goes about as well as can be expected. Oh, man. I wrote it and then I saw it. It's still an accidental pun. It wasn't on purpose. It wasn't a premeditated pun, okay? Nah. It's, it's only manslaughter. It's a manslaughter pun. <laughs> yes. The bucket, when they lower it, hits a dead body instead of the water. And the two of them, they figure it out pretty quickly. They knew what was gonna happen. I think they wanted to not believe it maybe, or think, well, they keep on trying to kill him and failing, so they'll probably just fail again. They were really relying on the incompetence of this bunch and not expecting it to really go through. So when they see it's gone through, it's very much a a shock to them. Stratton races back to the house. She's a total wreck. She clutches the family Bible. Alex comes in. He tells Bathsheba that he can't get any water because, quote, I believe Mr. Spooner is in the water. And meanwhile, Buchanan's standing next to him. And he's like, "Um, if, if you're not going to take those shoes, I mean, I'll take them. I love them. I think, I think he had great taste. They're, they're adorable. Really going to give me that elongated calf look I like. So he takes the shoes and he keeps them. The three main perpetrators here leave, Buchanan, Brooks, and Ross and say that they'll be back in two weeks. Bathsheba and Stratton go to bed. It seems like they're in the same room and probably in the same bed. Bathsheba is back on her bullshit. She just keeps on saying, I hope Mr. Spooner is in heaven. I hope Mr. Spooner is in heaven. Over and over and over. She's really pissing Stratton off because Stratton's like, you shut up or I will tell the neighbors what you did. Beth was like, okay, I'll give you some money not to do that. So, yeah, okay. And then finally, when Beth Shiba goes to bed, Stratton's like, screw this. And she goes to her own bed. Once, once Beth is asleep, she's like, I'm, no, not sleeping in bed next to a murderer.
1: Can't say I blame her one bit. Right?
0: Meanwhile, about five hours after leaving the Spooner residence, the, uh, the threesome here, Brooks, Buchanan, and Ross, they go back to the tavern that they left less than 24 hours before. And they tell Prudence when they arrive there, this very early morning, that the authorities were out looking for escaped prisoners of war. And then the, okay, I did look up a, a woman who owns a tavern. I like tavern mistress. It just kind of has a sexy wenchy kind of feel. Um, but the best I could come up with was That's, you know, an official word was alewife. Yeah, I saw alewife a lot in some of my readings. I don't like it. I want her to be, she's going to be the tavern mistress because I decide things. All right, (laughs) We'll make her the tavern mistress. So uh, he asks the tavern mistress to do some alterations on their clothes. They show her other items of clothing and mention that Mrs. Spooner had kindly gifted them stockings and shirts and all kinds of great stuff. Where'd she have all this extra clothes from? Both of the women, Prudence and the uh, tavern mistress, also noticed that the men have one of Spooner's horses in their possession. It's starting to get a little sus around here. A little bit. Just a little bit. Some, some radars are pinging here and there. It's getting even more sus and more radars are pinging back at the Spooner house. In the morning, Bathsheba is still on her bullshit about heaven. While staring down the well with Cummings by her side, and then she turns to him and asks, do you think we could sink him? I don't know. How far does this well go that he's... Oh, I, I, my God. Yeah, it's just, it's very something.
1: Well, if we could sink him by maybe throwing rocks, <laughs> then we could have access to the water once more. Maybe we, if we just dislodge him with
0: something heavy. Do you have a long stick? Cummings, how much do you weigh? So she sends Cummings to the tavern to ask if they'd seen Spooner since he left the previous night. And the tavern owner, Ephraim Cooley, his hackles go way up, radar's pinging all over the place now, and so he takes six men over to the Spooners. This man knows what's up. They do some searching, they find Spooner's hat in a pile of snow, and then they find blood on the curb of the well.
1: Well, and they probably have Cummings just
0: standing off to the side, like, kind of pointing. Yeah. Yeah, very much so, I'm sure. Look
1: over there.
0: (laughs) Follow my eyes. They're pointing in that direction. That's where the dead body is. So Cooley goes to the coroner and the constable, and by the time they get there, Spooner's dinner partner from the night before, who was a doctor himself, was on the scene, and the body had been pulled from the well. Beat him to the punch. Yeah, Coroner and Constable rock up and they're like, well, I guess we don't really need us here. You want to go grab some lunch or something? No. The only medical evidence that they really gather is that he had severe head wounds and bruises on his temple and forehead, as well as an inch and a half long cut on his scalp. They bring the body in. They lay it on the sofa. And Bathsheba and her two older children stay back. But little three-year-old baby Bathsheba goes and looks at the body. And she's three. Ugh. I know. She's, you know, curiosity is part of toddlerhood and, you know, hey, d- daddy, papa, papa, whatever. She's not understanding death, et cetera, et cetera. It's just very, don't like it.
1: Dad, wake up. Mm. You made it sad.
0: Err. <laughs> it was already sad. <laughs> <laughs> they also have the coroner's inquest there with the children present. Why not? That's nice and scarring. It's uh, an interesting thing here that I found was that, not that I found, I'm sorry, that Noon notes, was that the coroner picked the inquest jury himself. And so, of course, he would choose his buds. They get paid. So this is, again, uh, it's all in who you know type thing. Mm -hmm. Noon says, quote, um, they would choose from, quote, all white men who owned land, all likely of British ancestry, belonging to the congregational church and all patriots. So they're on the opposite side of the political divide from Bathsheba as well as these British POWs. So back at the tavern, Buchanan is bleeding himself, so he obviously wasn't feeling too well. Could be a couple reasons. He was doing this to try to make himself feel better, so it could have been psychosomatic, like feelings of guilt and anxiety over what they'd done, making him feel kind of ill. Could be that when he rolled that poison powder that you'll note they never used He got a little bit of mercury poisoning from contact with the powder. Noon points that out. And uh, so the the bleeding himself, he's doing that because they still thought in this time period that the four humors dictated physical health. Those were blood, phlegm, black bile, and yellow bile. And you don't want to know how these theories tie into ideas about gender and reproduction. Mm -mm. Nope. Good. And so I'm going to tell you anyhow. No. Within these theories, men were considered to be predominantly hot and dry, whereas it was held that women were subject to cold and wet humors, which led to them being changeable and deceptive. The preoccupation with women's biological functions also generated the theory that they were dominated by their wombs, which might migrate around their bodies, impairing rational processes. Wandering
1: womb! Why not? I mean, that's why we can't be on trains. It'll fly right
0: out of our bodies. Exactly. It all makes sense. It all ties together. Those crazy wombs. So uh, this was something uh, from their beliefs here. <laughs> I'm just
1: picturing like a womb orbiting a woman. And it, d- it dictates whether she's
0: going to be nice to you. Yep. That's very much exactly it. Yes. So this is from uh, writing about this particular uh, theory of the day. When remaining unfruitful, but long beyond its proper time, the womb gets discontented and angry, and wandering in every direction through the body, closes up the passages of the breath, and by obstructing respiration, drives them to extremity, causing all varieties of disease. Okay, so when you can
1: no longer make babies, your womb will make you angry and then eventually suffocate you, yes. because you, have no, you no longer have any point to
0: life. Cause of death, strangled by womb. There you go. There you go, yeah. Stop. Cause of death, barrenness. <laughs> yes. So, yeah, I just, as, when I saw that, I was like, oh, I'm going to have to subject, uh, subject Amber to that. I didn't did Yes, you did. No. <laughs> it's wandering womb,
1: though. I know, but <laughs> I'm going to have nightmares, literally, of my uterus jumping out of my body and circling
0: my head. You have a very visual um, way really of translating things. D-
1: The shit that happens in my brain would scare most people. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That's why I I try not to ask. Yeah. (laughs) I'll let you tell me when you want to. But other than that, I'm just like, whatever's going on up there can stay up
1: there. Yeah, I really only (laughs) say the funny ones because Mm -hmm. if I said the other ones out loud, they'd probably put me in an asylum somewhere. (laughs) Yeah.
0: All right. So these guys, I just have to say, our, our little trio here, they're just being straight dumbasses. Okay? They're dumb. They're so dumb. So Brooks, he gets sloshed on rum at the tavern that they're staying at. Then he heads to another tavern where he shows off not only Spooner's watch, but also the buckles on his shoes. Which are engraved with initials. J.S. Exactly. So between them being associated with Bathsheba... And Brooks calling all of the attention to themselves, they get busted pretty quickly. Ross just straight up confesses right there. They're not even arrested yet, and he's just blurting the whole thing out. Can't can't blame the kid. He's in a situation he never expected to be in, and he's probably having some freaking regrets right now. And he's also a kid. Yeah. He says, sir, I wish to see a minister. I am truly guilty of the crime, but let it be known, I did not strike the first blow. Spoiler alert, nobody's going to care about that. He tells them about the clothes he got and shows them the money Bathsheba gave him. At the coroner's inquest, their idea is, uh, the men were definitely sexed into this. She sexed them into killing for her. With that crazy uterus. Yes, exactly. They helped her out, quote, by the promise of great rewards, and undoubtedly, by ye fascination of more secret and bewitching favors. Ugh. (laughs) The coroner's jury also had Bathsheba perform an ordeal by touch. So you've got the ordeals by fire and by water, you know, in order to determine if somebody is a witch or guilty of this or that or the other thing. The ordeal by touch is basically the idea that if the accused touches the victim and their flesh changes color or there's any bleeding, then God is saying this, this accused person is guilty. The main point of it seemed to be mainly to make somebody confess, much like they will show somebody, you know, in a modern interrogation, pictures of the body or, you know, in in some of the ones we've talked about, take them to the morgue to look at the body. It's this idea of confronting what you've done in an attempt to get somebody to be truthful about it. And it does not work at all. She touched his head and said, poor little man but there's no mention of whether he bled or not. Which, um, he's dead, so, no. After the inquest, they told her that she was going to jail, and then she confessed the following. I hired the men to commit the murder. I offered them $1,000. I gave them $200 on deposit. The murderers included Sergeant Buchanan and Private William Brooks, We three were involved. Hmm. Who's missing? Ezra Ross. Ezra Ross is missing. So her sister probably took care of the kids uh, at this point, since their father is dead and their mother is in jail. And that had to be really fun for her because she had five children under the age of six. Oh, Lord. And then we're adding another three on top of it.
1: Well, I mean, with that many at that point, it's it just, just like, it's whatever. It's just more. It's just
0: always loud. Hopefully, they'll keep each other occupied. This is probably also still in children should be seen and not heard times. Yeah. I mean, children can be quiet. I've seen it happen. Not so much in America, but on, on French trains specifically. Babies don't cry on French trains. It's the most amazing thing. <laughs> okay? Children are quiet and still. Is chloroform legal over there? <laughs> I'm like, is the whole
1: train filled with carbon monoxide or something? I feel like it is. <laughs> yeah. Or like, they've, they have like little trank darts, which I really want to invent. Just like, do you imagine if like, the kids are just acting up, you're at the grocery store, it's not even your kid just,
0: <clears throat> sleeping baby. It'd be outstanding. I didn't know this was a dream that I had until this moment.
1: Yeah, like, I I want to make babies, baby
0: safe trank guns. Yeah. Thank you, Amber, for giving me new dreams. You're welcome. <laughs> so, oh gosh, I have such bad aim. This would be a horrible idea. Oh, yeah, I know. We <laughs> used to play darts. I'll, yeah, I'll seen, do it for you. Yeah, you've seen me play darts. This is a terrible idea for me. So, the ride to the jail is a little awkward, considering that both Cummings and Stratton, the, the you know, are with her. Both will be held as witnesses, but not charged. Bathsheba says, even though it's March, she says, it don't seem like Christmas Day. Well, really. I mean, you're getting arrested for your husband's murder. So no, not getting any presents. You're getting cold, bitch. And also it's March. Yes. She also says, I have a great desire to see my daddy. If it had not been for that, this murder would never have been committed. That goes back to what I said about he forbade it. Yeah. Yeah. You can keep a daddy's girl away from her daddy. And, uh, I guess there'll be consequences. She'll sleep with every man in town and have half of them kill you. I'm not approving this at all, by the way. It's just, uh, it's, it's kind of like, whoa. It's very much unintended consequences. You know, I just didn't want you to go on a trip at the moment because I got to watch the kids and everything. Oh, all right, fine, kill me, whatever. YOLO, I guess. <laughs> right. They get to the tavern where they do kind of, I think, it seems kind of like an arraignment. Uh, She confesses again, but this time she tries to slide a little bit more of the guilt towards her accomplices and the circumstances. She says things like, this is the effect of bad company. And this happened by means of Ross being sick at our house. She pleads not guilty, as do the men. Part of the indictment, this kind of amused me, not having God before their eyes, but being seduced by the instigation of the devil. So it's sort of saying the devil made me do it, but it's not the accused saying it, it's the courts. The courts are saying the devil made you do it. It's like, well, then I guess it's not my fault, right? Right. Yeah, that makes sense. The funeral is held for Joshua Spooner, And the murder is addressed right in the title of the sermon, which is a sermon preached at Brookfield, March 6, 1778, on the day of the interment of Mr. Joshua Spooner, who was most barbarously murdered at his own gate on the Lord's evening proceeding by three ruffians who were hired for the purpose by his wife. And Noon kind of sketches out how funerals worked back then, too, which is, as usual, incredibly unfair to the women. Uh, There would have been a big dinner afterwards. This was not a potluck. This was paid for by whomever paid for the rest of the funeral stuff. In this case, it was Bathsheba's sister, the same one who took in the kids. That's not cool. (laughs) Oh my goodness. And even more so, women weren't allowed to attend the dinner. They just had to pay for it. And probably make it. And clean up after it. So she paid for it, didn't get to eat any of it, we don't even know why. Yeah, they're usually held at the home of the deceased, so even more stress having to host people. Some funerals I've been to, everybody meets back up afterwards at the, the home for food. And usually it's not a, a direct relative preparing everything, but Jesus Christ, this woman... Her sister has eight children she's taking care of, three that were just foist upon her this week, and she's paying for the funeral for her brother-in-law, and she's not allowed to eat the food, and she probably has to clean it up. I would honestly be like, why would I pay for my brother-in-law? He has his own family. Yeah, right? Where's his family in all this?
1: Yeah, no, I'm going to have to eventually bury my sister. So, no, (laughs) this
0: one's not me. Probably sooner than expected. Yeah, it's not. It's not great. And so... Sometimes these funerals were kind of, uh, whew, something. Noon shows us one uh, 1797 funeral dinner. 120 bottles total of the following. Rum, beer, gin, brandy, wine. Expensive lemons and oranges, sugar, beef, ham, bacon, fowl, fish, oysters, 12 dozen eggs, vegetables, cheese, fruit, and sweetmeats. Wow. That is a feast. Far as you know proof Buchanan and Brooks signed confessions that were probably dictated and not written by themselves that always makes me feel uncomfortable doesn't matter how obvious guilt seems i just it puts too much power in the hands of the authorities and these are people with lots of reasons to be against Brooks and Buchanan, they're all—you know—they're on opposite sides. These are escaped prisoners of war. Yeah. You know, we don't approve of, of fornication. We, we don't approve of defiling the marriage bed. So they really had no defense to give at the actual trial, which they're all tried together. It's the very first capital murder case in the U.S., which has had barely two years of existence—not even—not even quite that. The trial was held on April 24th, about seven weeks after the murder. The defense attorney would later be the governor of Massachusetts and then attorney general in Thomas Jefferson's administration. So he's going places. They also note that counsel was usually retained after in the indictment, not the arrest. And in this case, the indictment was only three days before the trial. But it's, he might have been hired on earlier than that just because, the, you know, she had plenty of time and wanted to prepare, or the four of them did. Interestingly, Ezra Ross had given a similar confession to the other two men, but the defense attorney kind of made a special case out of him, arguing that he just didn't know that there was going to be a murder, or maybe he didn't know for as long as the other men did, so maybe it's less premeditated, He kind of maybe didn't participate... And if he did, or if he showed enthusiasm toward it, it was probably just because he wanted to get into Bathsheba's petticoats. I think kind of, he's making more of an effort because he sees more hope, since it's a younger client. He feels like there's more of a chance that, you know, there'll be mercy towards him. And so if he makes more of a case, then that'll just pile on top of that mercy, and perhaps he can at least win one. This also is of note because we have what is possibly the first testimony by an African-American in a capital case, Prudence, from the tavern where the the two men were staying and then came back to. She testified about the behavior of the two men and Bathsheba and, you know, some extracurricular activities going on in the rooms of the inn. (laughs) After one day of trial, 16 hours and 22 witnesses, none of which were the accused who declined to testify. They were all found guilty. All of them are sentenced to death by hanging. Now, we have something we've seen in the past before, about two weeks before the scheduled execution, Bathsheba claims to be pregnant. Now, according to the law, there had to be, in this case, a special examination. It was performed by 12 matrons and two midwives, or as they put it in the time, diligently to be searched by the said matrons in the presence of said men midwives by the breasts and belly. And Noon calls it a brutal examination, so they're not just, like, touching her stomach. <laughs> you know, it's, it, I, it, there's more to it than that. So, you know, there's a lot kind of on the line here, at least for a little while, because if, you know, there's a plus sign on that stick, she doesn't go to the gallows until after the baby is born. The exam finds her not pregnant. Then they give her another exam about two weeks later. It's not, it's requested by her, but it's not really state-sanctioned. This one, the result is very different, all but two of the examiners say she is pregnant. That second exam is just completely ignored. She also sort of switches her story now. Now she says that the murder was Ross's idea and it was his doing. He's the mastermind. And Noon questions whether this was more signs of mental illness or if it was an attempt at vengeance because it was now known that somebody else was pregnant too. And that was uh, a girl back in Topsfield from uh, the time when Ezra Ross went home for a little while. Well, they had a lot in common. They really did. They would both just love to spread around the love. Finally, uh, execution day comes, July 2nd. It's a big day. 5,000 people flocked to the site. Now, they had to sit in church through a long sermon about the murder. The men were to sit in the church. For some reason Bathsheba is not present and it's not clear why. But she seems pretty ready. The sheriff is getting the nooses ready and he brings one to her to check the fit. Asks if he can put it around her neck. And she says, sir, I esteem it as much as though you had placed a necklace of gold or diamonds about me. (sighs) That just doesn't seem right. So then they're off to the gallows. The accused man walked. Bathsheba was taken in a chaise with her confidante and spiritual advisor, Reverend McCarty. Noon notes that she was, quote, still weak from the midwives' exams. This, I don't know what they did. She she seemed like she was barely able to climb up the stairs to the gallow. It almost seemed like she had to, like, heave herself up there.
1: Well, so what I have is she was so weak at the time and I didn't have that it was from that. I don't have what it was from. But she was just so weak at the time that she had to crawl up the steps to the gallows on her hands and knees. It mm-hmm.
0: could also be lack of food or inability to have eat at all, like lack of appetite. As you know, you're, you're about to die. Um, it could be maybe she... I mean, this is utter and complete speculation. Rump speculation. Rampant speculation. It could be, you know, we have no way of knowing whether she had something like hyperemesis gravidarum, which would have had her, you know, with basically perpetual morning sickness and unable to keep food and liquids down. That makes makes you really weak. Mm -hmm. So it could be any number of a variety of things, including some that we haven't even thought of, I'm sure. So the men take their places on the gallows first, and she is in the chaise and watches them. She seems very calm. Uh, Her last words, my dear sir. I am ready. In a little time, I expect to be in bliss, but a few years must elapse when I hope I shall see you again. So the hanging goes off pretty much smoothly, although they were still in the days when they hadn't quite figured out uh, the whole, you know, figuring out the drop and everything. So sometimes it could take a little while. And so as for the aftermath, the men are buried Ezra Ross is taken home to Topsfield. And Brooks and Buchanan were probably buried uh, under where the Worcester train station is now. Which was a town where, you know, the trial and everything was. So if you're uh, in in Massachusetts and you go to Worcester and you go to the train station, you just might be walking over a couple of murderers. It's amazing how much history is underneath our feet. And so, uh, but... As Noon put it, and this was uh, very poignant to me, Bathsheba would undergo one last trial before her final repose. She had requested that after she was hanged, she get an autopsy. The autopsy found that the second exam was correct. There was a five-month-old male fetus in her uterus, which was amazingly still in place and not wandering about her body. No orbiting there. No orbiting uterus. This was July, so she'd likely gotten pregnant sometime in February. And then, you know, the murder was in early March. So uh, several, in in the future, how this kind of resonated outward, several relatives and descendants, were found to have suffered from mental illness, so we don't know if that played a factor or not. It happens all the time on this show, where we just don't know, because they didn't have the tools that we have available now. And it'll be the same thing in 250 years. They'll look back at us and be like those prehistoric idiots, because we don't have the tools that we're going to have in a couple of centuries. (laughs) We're living in a glass house, but we will feel free to throw stones back at the past anyhow. Also, another famous case pops up here in relation to Bathsheba Spooner. Her execution and the fact that she was found to be pregnant afterwards, this was this was something that horrified people um, for o- obvious reasons, may have been in the minds of the jurors in the Lizzie Borden case when they ended up going for a kind of surprising not guilty verdict. Over a century later, That was also in Massachusetts, just 80 or so miles up the road. And we covered Lizzie Borden. I think that was in our our 100th and 101st episodes, I think. Somewhere around there. Yeah, I think that was what we did for 100. But uh, it just seemed to be, it didn't always stop death sentences for women, but it just seemed to be kind of on people's minds. It was still known enough for a a while that whenever jurors would be sitting there trying to decide, they'd be like... "Eh, Well, because the baby didn't do it. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, talk about punishing the child for the sins of the mother. No. So, now as for other people involved here, uh, we mentioned that Timothy Ruggles ended up in Canada. He ended up in Nova Scotia. Uh, there was one article somewhere, I can't even remember what was, his Wikipedia article, I, I've read a lot, um, that said that he chose the motto of Nova Scotia, "Resurgam," which is Latin for I will rise again, now it's currently, and I have no idea what the history of Nova Scotia's motto is. I, I left that rabbit hole B. But now it is Munit hic et Eltera Vincit. One defends and the other conquers. So maybe Nova defends and Scotia conquers. I don't know. I don't know who the one and the other are. Uh, Nova Scotians, fill us in if you want. But you know, you. I, I feel like at the end of the day, it's don't
1: fuck with Nova Scotia. There,
0: there you go. <laughs> exactly. And so uh, Ruggles got 10,000 acres in Nova Scotia. People just love giving him acreage. This was kind of, um, it seems to be in response for the land and property he'd lost. And this was a, a, specifically he was, the crown gave him recompense for the property he had lost. Two of his sons joined him and he turned his land into a gorgeous estate. Joshua Spooner was buried in Brookfield. And the cemetery caretaker says that they've never been able to grow grass around that particular stone. Now, when people ask about it, he tells them, oh, well, there's so many visitors. They're trampling the gravesite. But he's like, I'm just I'm just reassuring them so that you know, they don't think something weird's going on. But
1: something weird's going
0: on. Mm-hmm. Speaking of weird, we've never had this before. There are chalk drawings in the attic of a tavern from that time period that is still standing. And there are pictures of these in the book. The drawings weren't found until the 1980s, but they are drawings of the hangings. Bathsheba and the men and the hangings. It's crazy. Oh. So it's just, somebody was in an attic, probably around that same time period in the tavern. And they were like, "Well, I'm feeling arts and craftsy. Hand me the chalk.
1: I find that very, very interesting because I actually had in my notes at one point when the three men were arrested at the tavern that Ezra Ross was actually hiding in the attic of the tavern at first.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah, but it would be silly for him to be drawing them hanging when he doesn't know the results yet and they're only just beginning. Yeah, unless he was like, we're all going to die. (laughs) Maybe. 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 I feel like it was somebody who was, like, practicing out their artistic skills or something like that. Probably, but it'd be cool as hell if it was Ezra. Because there's no mention of it being uh, a tavern that they were in. It's just a tavern that's in the area that was extant at the at the time. But uh, as far as uh, Bathsheba, nobody knows where she's buried. Well, probably. There was one person way back who said that only one person in this town knows where Bathsheba is buried, and they're not telling but nobody knows who that is or what's the what. So she just is kind of, um, her body has disappeared. But the, the story definitely lives on because, well, I mean, it's Revolutionary War America. So it's part of our history of how we became a country. Uh, there's also a lot of sex. Um, <laughs> you know, It's uh, it's very, very colonial in nature. We have grog. We have buckles on shoes. So one of the things I found to be
1: very, very interesting here is... So Bathsheba Spooner was
0: the first woman to be executed in New America. Oh, yes, I forgot that. I, I said it was the first capital case, but I forgot about the first woman thing, yeah.
1: But if you look it up, it comes up as Mary Surratt, who had a role in the assassination of Lincoln.
0: Yeah, yeah, years and years later.
1: So I'm kind of confused as to why Sp- She is just kind of erased from history.
0: Because people want to forget it because of the huge mistake that was made with denying her pregnancy and executing her anyhow. People were so horrified by that. They were like, crap, we better not do that for a really long time.
1: Yeah. Well, there's actually a list of women hanged Mm -hmm. between 1632 and 1900, and she's not on it.
0: That is weird. I mean, she was hanged. We know this. Yeah. And
1: it's just like, we're just not going to talk about that. We fucked up.
0: Yeah. Shh! Nobody say anything. This is just between you, me, and the autopsy records and history.
1: <laughs> so just bizarre. They're like, we're just never going to talk about that and pretend it didn't happen. Pretty much, yeah. Well, we we love sweeping things under rugs. So, so what? What are the title of your show notes? Um, the title of my show
0: notes were. Come on, go back in there. That's what she said. (laughs) Murder and probably yet another syphilis epidemic. Mine was let's seduce some assassins. (laughs) Nice, excellent. So I do
1: have a recipe for you. Oh, no. Is this in retaliation for the beef
0: fizz I sent you earlier? I'm still going to do that. I'm going to live stream it. I'm telling you. I don't know why, but I'm like, yeah, challenge accepted. There's too much citrus in it for me.
1: Um, But if if you want to leave out the lemon, I'll drink the beef. (laughs)
0: So, this is from uh, around the time. It's kind of hard to find the exact year so. 1778 was when Bathsheba Spooner was executed. This is from a few years later in 1787, and it was published in England by Mrs. Charlotte Mason. The name of the book is... The lady's assistant for regulating and supplying the table, being a complete system of cookery containing the most select bills of fare, properly supposed, for family dinners of five dishes to two courses of 11 and 15, and several desserts, including the fullest and choicest recipes of various kinds, and full directions for preparing them in the most approved manner, by which a continual change may be made, as wanted from the several bills of fare. Likewise, directions for brewing, making English wines, raspberry, orange, and lemon brandies. Also remarks on kitchen poisons and necessary cautions thereon. Okay. It's the the title of the book is actually longer than the recipe. <laughs> that is, I feel like they should have edited. Maybe a little bit. I mean, yeah. right from the start, right on the cover, you're like, somebody needed an editor. I stopped listening after four words. Somebody please get a red pen and go
1: to town here. Yeah, like I really wasn't listening until you said kitchen poisons, and I was like, oh.
0: <laughs> That's why I put the whole title in, because I knew you'd be curious about the kitchen poisons, but it wasn't until the end. All right, so this is uh, How to Make an Oatmeal Pudding After the New England manner, And I'm going to read it as written. Oh, great. (laughs) You hate this almost as much as you hate girding your loins. Yeah, I will gird my loins for your (laughs) (laughs) fffs. Yep. Take a pint of whole oatmeal, steep it in a quart of boiled milk overnight. In the morning, take a half pound of beef fuet. That's suet, so just to clarify... Shred fine and mix with the oatmeal and milk from grated mut- nutmeg and a little fault With the yolks and whites of three eggs, a quarter of a pound of currants, a quarter of a pound of raisins, and as much sugar oh. as will sweeten it. Oh. <laughs> Stir it well together. Tie it pretty clove and boil it two hours. Sauce melted butter.
1: Oh man! <laughs> i like I'm in pain. <laughs> So, for those of you who have never done any old-timey research, there is a period of time where instead of S's, newspapers and, and books would write the letter F. But not
0: every time. Just some of the time. And it's Some like, of the time. Just some of the time. And it's an S. It's really, it's it's kind of an S, but it's an S that looks very much like our version of an F. It's... Uh, uh, amazing and awful. It's really difficult to read and parse until you get a little bit used to it. And even then, it's kind of brain hurdy. But boy, is it ever fun to see Amber just collapse into a puddle of giggles. (laughs) And so, so this is oatmeal, suet, which is, suet is the raw, hard fat of beef, lamb, or mutton found around the loins and kidneys of an animal. And so you've got oatmeal, suet, boiled milk, Grated nutmeg, salt, three eggs, currants, raisins, sugar. You,
1: It's oatmeal raisin cookies with uh, Crisco, basically. With beef, really? Well, the, the suet would be almost like a Crisco thing if
0: it's just the hard fat because that would melt. Okay, yeah, you're right. True, tr- it would melt, yeah. And just in case you were curious, I did look to see what the kitchen poisons were. You had laurel. You had hemlock, which was also known as fool's parsley for the plant. It was very similar to in appearance. Mushrooms, copper vessels, and lead vessels. Oh, God, you just had to. You just had to.
1: <laughs> I quit. I'm done. Good night.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. So, on that note. All right. This has been an extra long one. Oh, man. so... Uh, <laughs> Uh, don't forget the Patreon, come see us on social media, a whole bunch of links down in the show notes, just, you know, come see it, come get the merch, and, uh, my, my butt is numb. Yeah. So, uh, let's wrap this bad boy up. Uh, again, a big thanks to Andrew Noon for reaching out to us and for sending us his wonderful book. It was incredibly enlightening. I feel like I really learned a lot that I didn't know about the colonial days and the war for, you know the revolution and of course Bathsheba so yeah. thank uh, you Andrew very much yes that was a uh, very kind of you to do and we were thrilled to be able to read your book and talk about it and we hope we did it justice but the thing is is that there is a lot more to it like I said there's so much about the war and everything and about how people lived that we I, there's no time for in the show so go buy the book and again, the link for that will be in the show notes, both in the sources and in, you know, up with the regular stuff. So I'll put it in there twice. And on social media, what the heck? I'm putting the link everywhere. So it'll be everywhere. So and so yeah, we're going to, let's see, this week, um I'm we'll gonna be spending a lot of time looking at old newspapers. How about you? Yep. <laughs> yep. So that's what our plans are for the week. And thank you as always for listening. And let's see. Um, maybe don't f- f- spread around your... God. Typholith.
1: Just remember, folks, it is much easier to hit someone in the head than it is to choke them. Choking takes time. If you are not a patient person, that's
0: not the way you should go. Crime tips with Amber. old Tummy crime takes no responsibility for Amber's thoughts or opinions. <laughs> all right see you next week guys bye bye sources sources very <laughs> wildly <laughs> yes they do and whether i remember or not varies wildly too do you want me to start go ahead all right i got women's history
1: blog.com thought catalog by denise no historic ipswitch.org and go.net.
0: my sources disappeared but um yeah i don't know where they went uh, well, pretty much it was the book that I mentioned, uh, Bathsheba Spooner, Revolutionary Murder Conspiracy by Andrew Noon, as well as, I think, some Wikipedia articles. And I think that was pretty much it. I don't know where they went. That's so weird. I, it's been a rough week. That's fine. You'll find them later. Yeah, I'm
1: sure. Uh, stick a fork in me. I'm done.
0: There was a five month old Venus... Venus. Penis. Penis. There was a penis involved. Yes, there was.